This is Comic Geek Speak episode 1566. Spotlight on Daredevil in the 2000s. I'm Adam Murdo. I'm Bill Ellis. And I'm Chris Everly. And welcome to the show as we finally reach uh, the end of our uh, long uh, Daredevil anniversary bandwagon. Almost to the end, my friend. Oh, well, that's true. That's true. There, there is a postscript coming more, as well. One more surprise in yes. store. But uh, yeah, this is the last of the... Uh, uh, marching through the decades, uh, sequential yep. spotlights yes. of uh, the adventures of the man without fear in celebration of his 50th anniversary, which took place last year, 2014. Um, so we're going to be talking about uh, Daredevil in the 2000s and a couple of uh, forays into other media as Indeed. well. Uh, but first, before any of that, let us uh, take a moment to acknowledge this episode's sponsor. This episode was brought to you by SuperheroStuff.com, where you go to for all of your Superhero Stuff! <laughs> yes, and <laughs> yes, good friends of ours, SuperheroStuff.com, where heroes shop. They, they warehouse their merchandise very near where I live, actually. I'm kind of honored by that. Uh, but yeah, they have, as always, they have a, some special things going on at their website right now. Uh, Shark Week is finally here again, and uh, they're <laughs> celebrating at SuperheroStuff.com with the Aquaman's Shark Week sale. Uh, 13% off orders of $39 or more if you use the code SHARKWEEK. All one word. <laughs> and, of course, uh, we're all um, breathless in anticipation for the uh, Ant-Man movie. And they want everyone to know that Ant-Man stuff has arrived. It's only a little over a week away now at this point, I believe, when uh, that movie hits theaters. And so they have got Ant-Man caps. They have got Ant-Man T-shirts. They've got, uh, uh, looks like, Ant-Man wristbands and iron-ons. Um, they've got uh, you know, Deadpool merchandise. They, they seem to have a... Special focus on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle merchandise uh, as of right now. So all kinds of superhero-related uh, apparel and collectibles and also things re- that are geeky but not necessarily superhero-related. There are certain TV and movie tie-ins as well. Uh, yeah, lots of uh, cool gear there to look at, and there are usually some kind of uh, specials or sales happening. So give them a try, SuperheroStuff.com, where you go to for all of your Superhero, superhero Stuff! Brother Murdo, did you ever think you'd see a day where there'd be a proliferation of Ant-Man merchandise? I sort of dreamed of it. I've I've been (laughs) insisting to anyone who would listen to my ravings that a shrinking superhero could make for a decent movie vehicle. And uh, hopefully the Peyton Reed and company will prove me correct. You're you're in a heyday right now because Adam is is going to be shrinking in the new DC show, too, finally. Earning his name Adam. Mm -hmm. uh, Because right now he's just been bad Iron Man. Um, <laughs> played by uh, ex Superman guy who's actually yes. giving us the hairy eyeball across the studio right now. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> oh, there you Brandon Rouse standee yes. here in the studio. Yeah. Sorry about that, but you are just bad Iron Man in those TV shows. He's not making eye contact with you. Though. I know he's not. He won't look at me. <laughs> he, he is not cool, but he he's just said. <laughs> you know, I've, I've yet I only watched a little bit of. A, 
Bill's already falling apart. Oh yeah, I've only I only watched a little bit of the latest season of Arrow, so I have to catch up when it comes on Netflix. But I, I did see the first few episodes where the Adam was introduced, or Ray Palmer, essentially. So I thought he did. I was impressed with his performance actually in those few episodes that I saw. I quite like Ray Palmer. Yeah, but I, I didn't see him. Him, you know, doff a costume, not doff or, or don Duff. a costume. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, I'm was, just glad that they gave Brandon Routh a second chance to play a DC superhero because well, Superman Returns was you know an unfortunate outing, and I don't think it was entirely his fault, really. No, it wasn't at all. No, I think he did a quite good, uh, quite a good job in that movie. Yeah, I agree. Couldn't I, I quite triumph over the material, but yeah. now get to see what he does as a. Uh, you know, slightly. If you're calling him bad Tony Stark, is he like mildly bipolar or what? It's not that he's bad Tony Stark. It's he's just Iron Man. Like he doesn't shrink. He's just got a a, a, a mechanical suit that doesn't work right most of the time. Um. So he really is just like a second-rate Iron Man. In but he's supposed to finally start shrinking. Finally gets a hang of that white dwarf star matter. Um. And and uh, and starts shrinking in the Legends of the DCU. Uh, TV show that's coming up. That's White right. Canary. Yes, to which we're all White looking Canary. forward, but which has very little to do with Daredevil. Uh, yes, this is true. That's all right, gentlemen. A healthy tangent is always tonic for the spirits, mm-hmm. especially for yeah. fanboys. I'm sure many of our <laughs> listeners, with a few, few notable exceptions, are enjoying our deviation at the moment. But I'll uh, put us back on the on-ramp towards uh, Hell's Kitchen. And uh, <laughs> Well done. Sir. We'll uh, discuss uh, Daredevil in the 2000s. Now, we left off in our last episode regarding uh, Daredevil Spotlights. We talked about – we finished talking about the Kevin Smith arc, Guardian Devil, which he produced with uh, uh, Joe Casada and Jimmy Palmiotti. This one, Casada and Palmiotti were, of course, their famous pencil inker team. And Billy, as an artist, what do you think of, the, of them as a team? Of Casada uh, and, and Palmiotti? Yeah. Uh, honestly, I'm not familiar terribly with the work, so I'm sorry to say. Billy, there's no I can't offer uh, – do we have any examples? Uh, just Guardian Devil, uh, Ash, I think, was their first major uh, co-creation. Uh, well, yeah, like independently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure they'd work together, like, like maybe Batman, I forget if Palmiotti inked him on Sword of Osriel, but uh, God, I've read that in years. Good question. Well, it's one that we can answer. Yeah. Well, while we're doing that, when we left off, we had just done a, a fairly good uh, – uh, Discussion analysis of Guardian Devil, the impact it had on sort of reinvigorating Daredevil for many listeners and readers, and also bringing new people. I, th- I think Pan said that he he was he came into Daredevil because Kevin Smith uh, w- took over the new series, Volume Two, and, and many other people did as well. That's where we closed our last episode. Now we're going to enter what what many consider, and, and certainly I consider, one of the most important uh, eras in the history of this character. Uh, which which is primarily centered around the work of Brian Michael Bendis, uh, the pencil Alex Malev, and then following them seamlessly, in my view, uh, Ed Brubaker scripting and then Michael Lark uh, penciling. So we're looking at what is a lengthy error of Daredevil where, for me, it's almost flawlessly outstanding. And we're going to look at how Bendis – who definitely is applying many noir concepts to Daredevil here and also building upon the, you know, the foundation that creators like Frank Miller established. He's taking the character very much down a dark road, but he's also exploring in a way that I think is extremely compelling just the nature of Matt Murdock's psyche, which of course people looked at before, but Bendis is now 
sort of having that collide with the, the new multimedia world of the, the very late 20th and early 21st century, and that's going to affect uh, the life of a superhero in a way that perhaps people hadn't been accustomed to seeing before, and certainly that Matt Murdock as the character in this fictionalized world really hadn't experienced before. All right, so we're looking at a character dealing with the fact that his secret identity is now completely out and public and the ramifications of that how, and how almost impossible it makes his life. And, of course, Bendis is also going to explore the impact of being Daredevil on Matt Murdock's life, which has been done before. Born Again is probably the, the, the most famous example of that. But that Born Again was one single story arc. Bendis is going to work for several years here and then Brubaker after that exploring what what it does to Matt Murdock and to his inner his intimate inner circle the fact that he's daredevil the impact that has on, on his own life and the lives of the people around him uh I can't emphasize enough how compelling this era is for the character if, if you've never read the Bendis Brubaker era of daredevil I highly recommend you do if you're a fan of the Miller era you're going to feel like you're coming home but in a way that is very much in the present day of when these stories were written. It's very, these stories were very reverential and respectful to what has come before, but again, Bendis and, and Brubaker are taking the character very much into the modern media era and the ramifications of that. So I'm, I've been very excited to be discussing this era. Uh, as I said in previous episodes, I've been reading Daredevil consistently since Born Again, every issue, and this is a period where I was excited every month literally for years to read this comic and there are very few comic book series where you can consistently look forward to a high quality issue every month for years and that's very much the case here and then we're going to go into after the very unfortunate shadowland interlude <laughs> we will go into the equally great mark wade era which is just now coming to an end as we speak actually and to me what i think one one of the overall sort of themes of this discussion is how amazing it is that this one title has basically been consistently great with one slight deviation for basically a decade. And it's just another example of how maybe Daredevil until recently didn't get as much play in terms of the sort of the pop cultural consciousness when it comes to comic characters. But put all the dog and pony stuff away when it comes to, to, to the work, all right, the essence of, of what makes a comic book great. That's what we're talking about right here today. So I'm very excited to be discussing this. Gentlemen, what are your uh, initial impressions of this era, if any? Ah, well, <laughs> you know, I'm glad you uh, appended, if any, to Indeed. the end of that statement there, Chris. It's a necessary stipulation in my case because I am one of those to whom you addressed yourself a moment ago when you said, if you've never read uh, any of the uh, Bendis run of Daredevil, you, you, you urge us to do Indeed. so because, yeah, um, I really was uh, – I looked a bit askance at, uh, at the, uh, the coming of, of, of Bendis uh, to the title. Um, I, I didn't know that much about him as a creator. Uh, he was, I sort of raised my eyebrow at the idea of this uh, sort of uh, uh, young Turk indie creator, writer of crime fiction, best known for things like Jinx and a.k.a. Goldfish and uh, Torso, which was a – if I'm not mistaken, is an Elliot Ness story? Yes, Torso, which which I, I'm a big fan of, is is a true crime story. Uh, what we're talking about here, just a quick and merged doing a nice setup. Brian Michael Bendis, who'll be one of the main focuses of this episode, 
he struck, cut his eye teeth uh, doing independent crime comics for companies like Caliber. Um, and then Torso, I, th- I think Torso was actually might have been through Image, it, or if, it, it, if not, it eventually went to Image. But it's about one of the first recorded serial killers in American history who was operating in the Cleveland area. And Elliot Ness at the time was the – I think the director of public safety. That was his name, title or something like that. So that, that it's about this hunt for this killer and actually focused more on the two actual detectives who were on this killer's heels and they, they hazard as to who the killer might have been. And it, it's, a, it's a great book. Hmm. And uh, possibly my favorite thing that uh, Brian Bendis has ever written is his Fortune and Glory miniseries, ah, which yes. is all about the, the uh, f- bad luck he had attempting to get that very story adapted into, into a movie. Yeah. Um, but yeah, at the time, I wasn't really feeling uh, Bendis coming to write something for one of the big two. He just seemed like he should stay where he was and continue doing his indie comics. Had you read comics. Ultimate Spider-Man at this point? No. Okay. And I was I was very leery about the Ultimate Universe as a whole because I was afraid that eventually it would uh, grow to, in popularity to the point that it would completely supplant the uh, Marvel Universe proper and you know, take its place. And I certainly didn't want to see that happen. And now here we are in 2015 as the Ultimate Universe is all but destroyed yes. and its remnants <laughs> are being folded into. Yes. So yes, the establishment won out in the end, yes. as, it, as it seems. <laughs> My fears were for naught. But uh, yeah, again, at the time, it's, uh, he was writing these crime <coughs> comics, and crime fiction is a genre that I, I just don't enjoy. I don't get into it much. That's Everyone's, well documented, my friend. I like a good noir film every now and again, mm-hmm. and Turner Classic Movies is giving us those Friday nights. It's a summer of darkness on TCM. <laughs> <laughs> That's about all the noir I feel I need, though. And I didn't really, I didn't want to see Daredevil pass into the hands of a creator like that. And uh, having sampled his dialogue here and there after he took over Daredevil, I thought, yeah, I've never really warmed up to his. Well, I really got tired of hearing people describe it as snappy dialogue at the time. <laughs> Artful repetition that just got under my skin pretty badly. It's, it's, it's not my, my, my kind of scripting. Uh, so I just decided, you know, I, I grumbled under my breath, well, all right, I guess Daredevil, if any character in the Marvel Universe, that's, that, that's the one to give to a, a guy like this Bendis guy. And, uh, and then, of course, he gradually grew and burgeoned in uh, influence at Marvel Comics and ended up being like the prime architect for a lot of its most important series, you know, Avengers and or X-Men at different times, and, you know, masterminded a couple of crossovers, and so he basically was Mr. Marvel, for, and just called... Consider that uh, one reason among several why the uh, early to mid-2000s are remain one of my least favorite periods of Marvel Comics history. So is it fair to say that you're not much of a fan of Bendis' writing still today? Um, th- th- there have been times when I've... Uh, sort of been moved by what he's done, uh, just depending on what attitude he approaches a project with. I really liked new, all new X-Men oh, when it yeah. got started. Oh, so good. Yeah, yes, it's, it's, it's a different kind of Bendis. So this is, it is actually uh, puzzles me a little bit that, I mean, maybe you don't like his writing, but, uh, but that, you would, uh, that you would not have, care for his legacy because he seems to me very responsible for for causing a resurgence of a lot of classic 1970s uh, characters. You know, I I feel like he's the reason that Power Man and Iron Fist are are in any spotlight in in the Marvel Universe, you know, that I feel like he basically started this this whole revamp of the Marvel U uh, for the time that he was in charge of it with Alias and just kept going from there, just being like, these are the characters I like. I'm going to write them. Yep. Writing his pet favorites, and really, you can't fault him for that. I mean, it's, you need to have 
enjoy the characters you're working with. So. You know, writing a comic book is professional fan fiction. Mm. So, <laughs> <laughs> well put, Bill. Yes, thank you. Yes, yes, very. By the way, we're honored that William Ellis has joined us today. Oh, thank you. The stalwart, redoubtable manager of Wild Pit Comics has joined us. And look who just walked oh. in. Oh. Now the circle is complete. Da -da 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 -da. Hello. Join da -da -da -da. us at the table. <laughs> we just started introduction to Daredevil in the 2000s, my friend. You're right on time. Mm -hmm. Yep, you've really missed nothing at all. We're just now giving our initial impressions. And Shane, I will give you a very masculine and uh, enthusiastic hug Excellent. later on. But um, I think a, a, a good point Bill made was that and this is one of the reasons why I love Bendis as a writer, especially his Marvel. I mean, I, I've enjoyed his work in general because I've read. I haven't read all of it, but I've read most of it. But it's, especially his Marvel stuff is that he's. I mean, I think he's a few years. I th I'm 42. I think he's he's a couple years older than I am. Maybe he's in his mid 40s. I, I'm not sure, but he clearly came up in the 1970s, and he clearly has a great love, as I do, for all those bronze. I mean, we're going to talk about the White Tiger for Pete's sake oh, during yeah. this episode. <laughs> so. You know, Bendis really goes for those deep album cuts when it comes to, you know, Bronze Age characters and, and settings and tone. So that, among many reasons, why I, I'm very excited about this. Murray, I had a question for you, though. I, is it fair to say you're more in love with the swashbuckling version of Daredevil? Uh, to me, Daredevil really should be more a superhero than a, I don't know, back alley brawler. Vigilante. Okay. Yeah, so. So then, when, in a way, it'll be great for you because we'll finish up with the Wade stuff, which very much... Uh, retains that swashbuckling feel. Yes, well, th that was when I came yeah. back to the character. When, when I saw the, the character and the title sinking into the, brack, the brackish waters of Bendicism, I, just, <laughs> I basically gave myself the decade off from reading the character. Um, with very few exceptions. I did pick up one or two issues of the Bob Gale and Phil oh, Winslade so much arc fun. because the gesture so was fun. in it. Yeah. And I bought the... Uh, oh, and I bought the, what was it, the uh, Paul Jenkins and Phil Winslade Daredevil Spider-Man miniseries, yes. which came out uh, late Thanks, 2000, man. early 2001. And I, I'm pretty sure I bought one or two issues of the Brubaker run. Because, you know, after yes. all, it's, we, we must point out that uh, not all of the 2000s Daredevil no. was, was Bendis. Uh, and, but I bought those only because it was supposed to be a Mr. Fear story. Yes, a Larry Cranston Mr. Fear story, mm -hmm. which we'll yeah, talk about shortly. You know, the Bronze Age uh, revivalism that uh, Bendis set in motion there. Um, That's, but, I think it was more Brew Baker though who does the Mr. Fear story. Oh right? yes, yes, yes. But, yeah. but uh, you were just uh, you know, praising uh, Bendis for his uh, yes re for returning to uh, Bronze Age characters, settings, and tones, and yes. and Brew Baker and bringing back Larry Cranston is, is could be said to be continuing along Absolutely. the same lines. Um, but yeah, until Mark Wade uh, started doing to the character pretty much what Carl Kiesel had done in his run yes. with Carrie Nord, which we extolled at, at length in our, our last episode, <laughs> um, that, that was when I chose to jump back on and have not regretted it. Um, but uh, for most of the 2000s, I simply did not read Daredevil. Would either. you ever reconsider re re revisiting the Bendis stuff, or it just doesn't appeal to you? It just does not appeal to me. Fair enough. Uh, I'm sorry. It's a no, no more than the Miller stuff does, which I also have not read and also don't really care to. All right. That's just where I stand. So basically what I'm telling you, Chris, is that uh, I am tabula rasa as far as this material is going. <laughs> and uh, you pretty much have sole possession of the lectern. Uh, but uh, the rest of us in the room will do our best to uh, we'll follow your lead. And uh, Comrades, I have no doubt that will be more than enough. Uh, Billy, do you have any other initial thoughts you wanted to contribute? Yes. Please. That's the answer to your first question. I quite like the Casada <laughs> Palmiotti stuff. <laughs> I, I was familiar with it. Oh, yeah. 
Um, oh, Quesada I, but did... I did not know. I did not know the names attached to it. But I, I'm familiar with the imagery, and I, I quite like it. It's like, it's like clean Todd McFarlane Spider Man with the, the uh, Billy Club going say, all over the place. Yeah. Um, and so I, I quite liked that how it would just bounce around and create neat patterns around him. Uh, but it's very, very clean, very bold, uh, very bold shapes and shadows in the costume, and uh, quite nice. I think I prefer the modern sensibilities of the Daredevil, the uh, Samney Ugh. stuff, which is is simple and beautiful. Uh, well, that, that's very reminiscent of the Wally Wood approach, the Daredevil in the early uh, Silver Age, which we'll talk about. We have talked about actually. Do you have other comment thoughts, Billy? On because you read you read some of this this period. I read uh, a, a bunch of the brew, uh, the Bendis stuff and a bunch of the Brewbreaker stuff. This yeah. was after it had come out, and and I was reading it in omnibus form. Yes, uh, on lunch breaks at work. And uh, um, I, I quite liked it. I'm a, I'm a bit more of a Bendis fan than than Murd is. Um, I was reading I was reading Ultimate Spider-Man uh, from the beginning. Me too. And uh, that was my first introduction to him. And uh, he was still quite wordy when he was doing the Daredevil stuff. He's gotten a little less wordy. Yes. Yeah. See, maybe that's why I've warmed up to him a little bit over the past few years. His writing has changed, I think, mostly because he's been doing a lot of team books lately. Ah, such as um, All New X-Men. Exactly. All New X-Men, he's been writing Avengers, like all of them, oh, yeah, Avengers. For, for years, uh, yeah. So he's been moving a lot towards team books, and, and because of that, I think, has gotten less on the like one-on-one person saying the same sentence 15 times. Although I still quite liked that when I was when I was young and reading it. Um, yeah, that's that. All right. Shane, any initial thoughts on the Daredevil in the 2000s? I haven't really read much of it. I, I read some of the Mark Wade stuff that comes later. Yes. But um, this first batch of stuff with uh, uh, Bendis, I never really read any of it. Um, Pants actually gave me one of those omnibuses. I think that he won from your shop one time. Ah. And um, I keep trying to sink my teeth into it. And I just haven't. It, the artwork from uh, Alex Lev. and Lev yeah. bothers me. Now, really? I like him on okay. other stuff. Interesting. But um, on Daredevil, I, I can't stand it almost. I don't know why. Um, so I haven't even gotten back to try it yet again. There is some interesting uh, cross-conversational occurrence in this episode. <laughs> yeah, because I, I, um, yeah, I never read anything of it. So like Merd said, you have soul... <laughs> So, handle of the lectern. Tell us about Daredevil. <laughs> <laughs> As Billy looks at me dreaming with his face in his hands. Tell us all about Daredevil. Yep, we're all clutching our teddy bears. Now, Shane, <laughs> now Shane one of the question you mentioned the Wade era, which is coming to an end now. Yes. So, like Murd, you're a big fan of that. Yeah, yeah, I do. I like the way he started. I, I read the first two or three trades of it. Uh, yeah. I bought the hardbacks. And I have all of them until he left to go to California, San, San Francisco. San Francisco. Right, okay. Um, that's where I stopped. I just haven't gotten him yet, but I, I plan to. Um, but I really, I really enjoy what what Wade did with the character. Brought me back to it. Well, then you'll have a lot to say when we get to the, the final installment of uh, <coughs> this episode. We can talk about the the very end of, of well, the Daredevil title is coming to an end in a few months. Correct. I think I so. Think the current volume is coming to an end, yeah, and they're going to relaunch the it. Most recent preview solicited the last issue. Yes. Yeah. Mistaken. Was there was there a Daredevil title in the new? Yes, because. When I went on, I think you, I think you guys may have talked about it in another episode. When I went on CBR, they had images of all the new Marvel covers. Yeah, yeah. we have a magazine in the shop. Okay. that has them all. I'll get you one. Thanks, pal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure I, I could be wrong, but I seem to recall Daredevil with Gambit. 
Oh, covers? really? No, th- I don't think that was Gambit. That I wasn't think, Gambit? Well, it looks like Gambit. Okay. I didn't see any cards, so it's hard to tell. Okay. He wasn't talking But the Cajun cover seemed to me. convey the image that Daredevil was going to be mentoring somebody. I kind of yes. got that impression from the cover. Okay. I know. I remember now exactly which one you're talking okay. about. All right. Now, as we plunge in, one thing, just to sort of establish a l- larger context, we have to remember what's going on in Marvel Comics at this time because it's in the early 2000s, and a lot of changes have been going on in the company. As Murder alerted to earlier, uh, at the dawn, well, I think it was, was it year 2000? They started the Ultimate line. Yes. Um, yeah. Right? I remember as a retailer, <clears throat> even though I'd only been in business a few, uh, maybe a year at that point, but I'd been a reader my whole life, I was already jaded by the constant relaunchings of characters. So I ordered very few copies of Ultimate Spider-Man 1, not expecting it to be any, you know, great slice of bread or anything like that but i remember i remember being blown away by it. i loved it i devoured it i, I won every issue after that I, i'd never read bendis's work before i'd heard of him but I hadn't read anything by him and i was so impressed with the voice he created for this sort of this modern uh updated version of peter parker as, as a teenager so i i enjoyed that bill you mentioned alias yes. uh earlier which also came out in these first few years of of, of the 2000s um and that – that's still my favorite work by Bendis without question. Um, and I, I love the edgy, gritty, noirish feel to that. And, and again, we'll talk about – I'm sure we'll talk about Jessica Jones more uh, in, in future episodes because, she, again, she's getting her own television was, show as well. It was also finally, finally resolicited in trade in yes. the last month's previews, I think. The so. first two arcs, I think. So we're going to have that at Wild Pig Comics, but (laughs) uh, go to your local comic book store and get that book. Now, they did reissue the Omnibus for Alias finally uh, not too long ago. I don't know if that's still in print now, but there might be still some of those out there, perhaps on Amazon or at a local shop. Well, it's going to be in soft cover, so you can get it and not pay your arm for it. But when I read that, I was so impressed with with just, again, Alias is such a – Hey, look at the Marvel Universe in a, from, the, from sort of the more seamier underbelly perspective. Has everybody here read Jessica Jones? Nope. Uh, I've read maybe the first four issues. Okay. So, yep. again... I will, I will read more of that. Yes. So you did, you did enjoy that then? Yeah, what you yeah read. sure. Okay. I understand that uh, she, uh, I think, was it Maddie Franklin uh, from uh, you know, the, the Spider-Woman yes. yes. character? Mm-hmm. Becomes a supporting character there. Luke Cage eventually shows up. And, oh, yeah. Luke Cage is in there almost from, from the, the very beginning. Yeah, I think almost from the beginning. In more ways than one. Now like that I see it, there's a, a story with Maddie Franklin. You see her a couple times, but Luke Cage is is very present uh, throughout. Right. And that story. Uh, the Purple Man is in there too. Oh yes. Oh, yes. Always so ever. Uh, Pants was telling me that he learned at HeroesCon a couple of weekends ago that the that issue of Alias in which Purple Man appears is now commanding pretty high prices. Uh, Probably it, because Purple Man will appear in the Netflix played series. by David Tennant. Yeah, that's cool, isn't it? Oh, yes. That's going to be good. Just that he's in it is cool. Now, so having read Ultimate Spider-Man, having read Alias, and then I started to backtrack and look at some of Bennis' older crime stuff, I, like, I really enjoy this writer. I, I like his tone. I like his approach. He is wordy. I agree with him. In fact, as I was rereading some of these old Dale Rebel stories from the previous decade, I was struck by – how verbose some of the issues are. But, uh, again, I'm an old-fashioned comic reader who loves all the exposition in a comic book. I, lo- I miss captions. I, lo- I love thought balloons. So I, I was enjoying sort of his, his approach to the narration by often being quite wordy. 
Um, and when he took on Daredevil, I was very intrigued to see how what he would do with the character because I liked everything else he'd done that I'd read up to that point. And boy, was I not disappointed. Is this after he's done Powers as well? Powers has also come out. Thanks for reminding yes. me. So Powers Which has also was come out. the most verbose of verbose books. And that's an, another book I also enjoyed. In fact, I enjoyed for years until, this, I don't know, it was a scheduling issue or creativity or what. It started to come out so infrequently that unfortunately I kind of lost, lost track of Powers. Um, but his run on Daredevil for me is so steady and so builds, respectfully, as I said before, on the foundation that Miller and many other creators uh, established that – I've been Jones to talk about this stuff. So, and we have any other initial questions before we pour into the checklist? Anything at all? All right. Now, again, we left off with the Kevin Smith arc. So, it doesn't go to Bendis right away. Uh, in fact, we left off with volume because we're in volume two of Daredevil at this point, and we're actually talking about four different volumes of Daredevil by the end of this episode. Because and I know Shane always enjoys this. They're going to jump the numbering back to volume one numbering. <laughs> yeah. Then they're going to jump forward again to volume three. Then and that then then we're now currently we're in volume four. Because everybody with a scorecard on home is keeping this straight how it actually works. So right now we're talking we're in the second volume of Daredevil, which began with issue one at the very end of the nineties with the Kevin Smith storyline. Now volume two number nine, Smith is no longer writing the book. He just did his one story and he was out. Kassad and Palmiati are still on it as the penciler and inker, and the writer is David Mack, who is providing covers. Now, I think everybody in this room is familiar with David Mack, at <laughs> least in a general sense, as, yeah. as an artist. Some of us may have looked at his Kabuki work, for example, which I want to yeah. say was Caliber originally too. I think so, yeah. He and Bendis, I think, both came up through Caliber before it went on to Image. Mm. Yep, I believe you're right about and, that. And yeah. um, what do people think of David Mack's style? Because it's so... When that first appeared in, in comics, and I first remember becoming conscious of it in the Daredevil work, and then it kind of backtracked to some of his older Kabuki stuff, what do people think of, of Mac as a visual artist? A little bit jarring for me at first. Yeah. But I liked, I liked what – I read the one volume of Kabuki that I think we did God, years ago for mm-hmm. a Book of the Month club. Um, I don't even think I ended up on the episode. I think something came up and I couldn't make it. But yeah, I'm sure I wasn't on it. I liked, um, I liked what I saw. Back then, and I know I read, I read through this stuff up until um, Bendis started to take over, and it mm-hmm. wasn't because of Bendis. It really was the art that that took me away from it. The first issue that I looked at, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But um, but yeah, I read all this stuff and I enjoyed it. Right through, Bob Gale was the last arc before yes uh, Bendis took over, and and didn't he have something to do with Back to the Future? Yes, yeah. he, that's he, specifically why I kept. A, I think he's one of the screenwriters of Back to the kept Future. Kept reading it was oh okay well I like Back to the Future. Let's see what he does with Daredevil. <laughs> Actually, Bendis comes on for one story, leaves. Gale comes, and then Bendis comes back. So, what do you think of as an artist, Bill? What do you think of David Mack? Uh, I I've always quite liked his artwork. It's it's very ephemeral. It's I like the the color choices that he uses. I prefer. Uh, even in comics, especially in comics, I like stylization over uh, a strict adherence to you know what it would like look like in the real world. It's art. I want it to look like art. What do you mean when you say that? Well, that if you're going to draw a desk, make it look like you drew a desk as opposed to you know just the desk, just the object. Not a Greg Land fan, huh? Uh, Greg Land's okay too. I mean, okay. you know, I, I like I have nothing against the the skill that it takes to draw a desk exactly as a desk, mm-hmm. but I also I want to I want to see the art 
in it and 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 you want to see a desk evoked yeah exactly yeah you don't need to make the art look like the thing you're trying to draw to convey that and so it, you know it becomes more about the storytelling especially when you when you allow abstraction and and strangeness and david mag is just i quite like the watercolor too yeah, yeah, I like watercolor a lot when it's done well. I was always a, a fan of of magic artists and illustrators, in particular uh, Tony DiTerlizzi and uh, Therese Nielsen, and they do uh, the same sort of stuff, which is... Tony DiTerlizzi does a lot of, like, exaggerated caricatures in watercolor on brown paper, and uh, it, it puts me in mind of David Mack stuff, and uh, Therese Nielsen does does water... I think it's watercolor as well. Um, and and it's very abstract. Do you think Max approached is is appropriate for sequential storytelling? Absolutely, okay. it works. Okay. <laughs> if it works, it works. That's that's all you need. Murray, what do you think of Mac? Ah, well, <laughs> I, I respect Bill's reasoning here, uh, as far as his uh, preference for abstraction over uh, extreme detail. Um, uh, for me, it, it was. Uh, I think I'm more in Shane's camp here. It was a bit of a turnoff. And when I think of Daredevil comics of this period, I think of Bendis and how I didn't much care for his scripting. And the, the next thing I think of after that are those uh, David Mack covers and later like, Alex Maliv covers, mm. uh, which were sort of abstracted. They were very uh, abstract, yeah. Almost, uh, yeah, the, 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 yeah, the watercolor was actually a little bit off-putting for me. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that uh, style of art. I just didn't think that it belonged on Daredevil. Mm-hmm. I, I just didn't think it was a good... A good fit, and I know I've uh, usually when I say that uh, an art style is not a good fit for a character, it's I'm usually uh, in direct opposition to other people in the room who think <laughs> the exact opposite, <laughs> and are just <laughs> silently, uh, <coughs> inwardly dialing the paddy wagon to come and take me away to the <laughs> asylum for the for for poor taste in comics. Um, yeah, yeah, so uh, the short answer is I I like David Mack just fine. I, I have a couple issues of Kabuki someplace. I'm sure I do, but. Uh, I didn't necessarily want him to be doing Daredevil any more than I wanted Bendis to be. Fair enough. Now, Mac, he, he's only involved in Daredevil for a brief period, but some significant events do occur. Uh, probably what people would most uh, speak to is in issue 10. He introduces the character Echo, um, and this is her first appearance as a, in the Marvel Universe. And Echo is a – she's deaf – so she, you know she's has she has a, her own uh, disability, but not quite like Matt's. But they certainly have something you know, they could sort of bond over. And is her name Maya Lopez? That is her name. Yes. Okay. And it turns out that she is a sort of a not a creature, but like a pawn of the kingpin. Some of the kingpin has been manipulating for years. She's a young woman, and uh, he makes the kingpin makes uh, Maya believe that. Daredevil killed her father. And what are her powers? Does remember Echo's Does it, powers? Isn't she sort of uh, uh, taskmaster-ish? Right. Where she she can... Photographic reflexes. That's yes. right. Well done. Thank you. Well done. Yep. It's like a superpower that she's acquired as a result of, well, like Matt, you know, the, yeah. the, it's a trade-off. Lose one of her five uh, primary senses and gain some kind of special ability in exchange. Uh, so she lost her hearing, but um, I guess she's kind of like a cross between Electra and the... Uh, 
the DC character Cassandra Cain, who became okay. Batman. That's, okay. I was going to bring her up, yeah. Right, because her father was a master assassin. Well, Cassandra Cain's father was a master assassin who raised her. In, she, she wasn't deaf, but uh, he never spoke around her. He never taught her to, to speak verbally, so yeah. she only understood physical communication, right. and it made her one of the most deadly martial artists in the world. Right. That's, uh, violence was her first language. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's her speech center of her brain kind of evolved uh, to uh, read her opponent's movements. And uh, Maya Lopez, Echo, seems to have uh, something similar going on for herself. You know, she can't hear, but uh, she, by viewing other people's movements and reading them, she's able to compensate in combat. And so much so that uh, she can pretty much remember and duplicate any physical feat that she sees. Gentlemen, outstanding. <laughs> All the more so when you consider I've never read a single appearance of this character in my life. <laughs> oh, that's not entirely true. I did read, uh, she eventually came into New Avengers. Yes, she did. Yes, okay. she did. Well, we'll get to that eventually, yes, I'm sure. Yes, yeah. that's right. Well, I'm sure we talked about that when we did our Avengers Spotlights because she was the uh, the Ronin character. Right. She yep. was the first. The first Ronin yeah, character. To adopt the yeah. identity of Ronin. Now, it wouldn't be Matt Murdock. If he didn't try to, no pun intended, mack on every girl he meets in his series. <laughs> So he and Maya – okay, Matt and Maya don't realize that they're also Daredevil and Echo. So while Daredevil and Echo are locked in this conflict, Matt and Maya you know, go out on a date. So there's that <laughs> classic tension. Um, and over time, we'll talk about how Matt is able to make Maya see that you know, what the Kingpin has been telling her is not true and that she's being used by him and so forth and so on. We have to we also, we also remind readers that the Kingpin is still a, a presence in the criminal underworld at this point. He has not been dethroned. Certainly he was weakened uh, politically by the events of Born Again, but he's still there and still very much uh, you know, a menace lurking in the shouty periphery of Matt Murdock's life and consciousness. Now, uh, in issue 13, the Kingpin actually goes on trial, and we, we, should go, we have to remember Rosalind Sharp, Foggy's uh, duplicitous, ruthless – I forgot if that's – is that his birth mother or his adopted mother? Damn it. I'm pretty sure she is the, uh, the biological mother. Yeah, I think she's the, because she's not – I don't think she's not that old, so I, she probably to Wikipedia. had Wikipedia. Yes, and she's a real shark, and she successfully defends Wilson Fisk uh, in court. And these are all being written by David Mack. In issue 15, uh, Matt is able to convince Maya that the kingpin was the one who killed her father, not Daredevil. So she's able to kind of break her free to some degree from uh, his control. But they return to Echo later because in the midst of the Bendis run, uh, Mack will come back and do a, a, his own little sort of mini arc uh, and, and, and take over the book for several more issues. So they, we're going to return to the Echo character within the pages of Daredevil. Now, issues 16 through 19 – is the first uh, Brian Michael Bendis scripting on the Daredevil title. This, this, he just does this one arc, and then he leaves, but he's going to come back. This is not the beginning of his run, but it's, it's the first time I remember being conscious of Bendis writing Daredevil and, and you know, being exposed to his approach to the character. Now, what's interesting about this story is called Wake Up, issues 16 through 19. And I just read this story again maybe a week ago, and I, reading it again now as a father so affected me in ways that didn't when I read it, you know, in my 20s. Hmm. Um, and the gist of the story is – and this is Ben descripting and, and uh, David Mack is penciling. Ben Urich is investigating – we also have to remember that Ben Urich knows Matt Murdock is Daredevil but has kept the secret for all these years out of respect for his friendship for Matt and what Matt does for the city. 
So he keeps the secret. And he's a, a Daily Bugle investigative reporter. And he's investigating the leapfrog, the leapfrog uh, murder. Don't remind people who the leapfrog is. Well, see, th- this was another sore point for me uh, as <laughs> oh, far as uh, the terrific. Well, this period of Daredevil history and Bendis' involvement in it. Um, the version of the leapfrog he's portraying in this story is very clearly at odds with. Uh, Eventually, somebody came in and retconned that this was the second guy mm. trying to play at Leapfrog. It wasn't the original Leapfrog, whose name was uh, Vincent Patilio. And uh, he, was, uh, he was just a costumed crook who happened to have spring-loaded boots yes. and uh, tried to make a go of it as a frog-themed supervillain. Didn't, uh, <laughs> didn't last. Not to be confused with Frogman of, uh, the, uh, of uh, Count Nefaria's Animan. Right. Completely different guy in a frog suit. Also, not to be confused with Super Mario Brothers three, but that's a different <laughs> <laughs> pull up the tangent too. Um, but yeah, he gave up uh, the, the life of crime pretty quickly, and we uh, learned some years later in uh, uh, some issue or other of Amazing Spider-Man that he did have an, a, a son, a teenaged son, about Peter Parker's age, actually maybe a little younger, uh, who uh, found his father's old frog costume and became a crime fighter or tried to be a crime fighter at least, called the Fabulous Frog Man. I remember that, yes. Played largely for laughs. He was kind of tried to be Spidey's obnoxious sidekick a few times. And, um, so here we have this uh, completely different uh, leapfrog with a completely different son, and um, I was kind of livid about that at the time. It's like uh, this Bendis clown coming in here <laughs> not even doing his research from trying to tell stories about these characters. And I was, It's not the, the leapfrog and, and or Fabulous Frog Man are such important characters, but uh, it uh, really... Uh, chapped your ass. It, it did not do... Uh, yeah, thank you, Shane. It did, my ass was well chapped by, <laughs> by Brian Michael Bendis <laughs> and his disrespect for the proud legacy of Leapfrog. <laughs> so, yeah, that's... <laughs> thank you. Great sound effect there. Uh, and so... Yeah, that's another reason why I decided this. I didn't want Bendis uh, coming on this title full time, much less you know, be, you know becoming one of the most important writers in all of the, 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 all of Marvel comics. Fair enough. So, but now this yeah, short answer is Leapfrog is just a guy in a frog suit with spring-loaded boots. Right. Yes. Now, it turns out that this sec- we'll say the second Leapfrog has gone missing, and his son is traumatized. A little boy. And he's he's in a, like a special um, under special medical care, and Yurik is investigating and trying to communicate with the boy through his drawings, his artwork, crayons, etc. You know what he saw because it's clear to Yurik that the child witnessed his father in a confrontation with Daredevil, and he goes to Matt because he knows Matt as Daredevil and asks, you know, do you know what happened? And Matt doesn't isn't really sure what the kid is is referring to and so forth. And over the course of this story, it's really it, – the story is very much from Ben Urich's perspective. And as, as any longtime Daredevil reader knows, Ben Urich is one of the great narrators of Daredevil's story. And, and oftentimes yarns that feature him, he is the narrative voice in that issue. And Miller used Urich brilliantly throughout his run, and now Bendis is going to do the same in this story. In this story, Urich really starts to feel for this child – and he's determined to find out what actually happened to that traumatized this kid. And it's, it's, a, it's a story about how a hero may not fully realize the ramifications of his actions on the, on the, the, sort of the peripheral people around him, on the fact that Matt was battling this kid's father in front of the kid and how it affected the kid. And it's also a story about the, the horrors of child abuse. And uh, you know, it just turns out that uh, this second leapfrog was so despondent and such a loser 
just was such a failure in his role as, you know, the second leapfrog <laughs> that uh, he was taking it out on his defenseless young son. And throughout the story, Yurik and Daredevil are able to piece together what actually happened and that it, it culminates, I don't want to spoil it all, but it culminates with, you know, both Yurik and, and Daredevil in their own ways helping this child sort of, if not recover, then kind of come back to reality and start to deal with what he experienced. So it, to me, and having read the story again, it, it really reinforced me what I think a strong approach Ben has taken right out of the gate with the Daredevil character, looking at the Daredevil character from a different perspective that we may not be accustomed to. I thought it was very affecting. Now, you guys mentioned this before, issues 20 through 25, and these issues are often, I find, hard to find. Really? Well... Huh. I don't, I don't think they, they – if they traded this story, they probably put it in trade, but that trade is out of print now. And because they don't consider this, a, a, a quote, important part of the Daredevil history, I don't know if you know if we're going to see this in trade anytime soon. But this is a damn fun story. As you mentioned earlier, this is Bob Gale who was the co-writer of Back to the Future, yeah. uh, the screenplay. And he with the artist Phil Winslade, they did this great courtroom drama uh, where – Someone wants to sue Daredevil, and they want to hire Nelson and Murdoch to do it. So Matt has to figure out, okay, how am I going to convince people that I am not Daredevil so I can defend Daredevil and but also show that Daredevil is actually present? And th- to me, this has such a fun Silver Age feel to it, this story. And uh, you know, at one point, Peter Parker is disguises daredevil and there's a courtroom drama and it has such a it has an effervescent feel to it that i think people who love the 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 wally wood daredevil the gene colon daredevil you know that that the courtroom perry mason feel and the, and the antics i think it's very much in, in these issues now you guys read these these issues right? yeah, and what, yeah. what'd you think of them? i enjoyed these issues what part of what i think found i found a little bit despondent in issues coming up was didn't in in this arc we clear daredevil of any wrongdoing and it's proven that matt's not yeah there's a mistrial yep matt's not murdoch uh, matt's not daredevil right. and daredevil's just out there right fine which we've done many times before in daredevil's yes. history so then this ends and bendis starts and isn't that one of the first things they go through is proving daredevil isn't matt murdoch again but in a very different way yes in, in a period of issues yes and i just thought we just did this now we have to do it again? I mean, th- this isn't like a different volume or a year later. This is almost right away. You know, I didn't ever even thought of that. And that, that kind of bugged me and turned me off a little bit as well as, again, the artwork. And then, and, and I want to say I loved Malev on um, uh, Spider-Woman that he did. Didn't he do? Um, yes, he did. With, with the Bendis. short-lived yes, one, yes, which I, yes. I absolutely love that. Um, but, yeah, that, that, that always bugged me a little bit because we just got through proving that Daredevil – and Matt Murdock weren't the same person, clearing Daredevil of wrongdoing, and now we got to do it again in this new arc. Now, again, done radically different, but still. Why did you enjoy the, the Gale story so much? Just fun. Yeah. Fun Silver Age, like you said, fun Silver Age stuff. Um, it, it used Peter Parker, who, again, is in New York anyway, so you're bound to see some of these characters cross right. over. They're friendly. They help each other out in circumstances like this. I loved uh, Spider-Man's use in the Kevin Smith run, so this kind of felt... Like a natural thing yes. that would happen. Bird? Um, truth to tell, I only picked up number 21. 
Okay. Didn't read the entire arc. I bought it only because of the Jester appearance. Ah, yes. Yes, because uh, the parties that were attempting to sue Daredevil uh, actually hired uh, the Jester to go out there and uh, commit a crime, quote-unquote, to attract Daredevil's attention. And when Daredevil caught him, he turned around and smilingly served a subpoena to Daredevil to appear in court. <laughs> yeah. Also uh, featured the first appearance of an ugly new costume for, for the Jester. That's right. Think, yeah. Okay. They're revealing the, like his entire face. Yeah. It's a maskless costume, which yeah. just made him look like a generic court jester, more or less, as opposed to the more <laughs> Commedia dell'arte inspired, uh, long <laughs> sort of Cyrano mask that he <laughs> used to wear. God, I missed you. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Now, Billy, you didn't read this, these issues. I right? didn't read this story. Okay. The most I can say is that I, I kind of like Phil Winslade's artwork. Why? Uh, I don't know. He drew Goddess. He's I was, artsy. <laughs> I really liked Goddess by Garth Ennis. So. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the few Ennis stories I have not read. Oh, well, you can if you yeah. want to. It's super 90s or 80s. I don't even know. It's, it's a Vertigo book, right? Yes, it is. Okay. Probably it's, it's, 90s then. Yeah, it's probably yeah. 90s. Yeah. Okay, so it's, it's ridiculous, but a lot of fun. Okay. Billy, when you say that, that's all I need to hear. All right. All right, there you go. Now, issue 26 begins the Bendis Malev run on Daredevil. And they'll be on the book. Uh, they, they do take a break, as I mentioned, where David Mack will come back in. But otherwise, they're on the book, uh, let's see, until issue 81. It's that's a good a hell, run. That's a hell of a run. Yep. Um, and again, we, we've talked about this many times. When you think about how many creators will come and go on comics – those come on for one arc and then they leave, and, and you know there's not there's not always not a feeling of consistency. This is this is quite quite a run. We have to remember also at the same time Bendis was writing Ultimate Spider-Man, and he would work with Mark Bagley on that. They set a record as the longest running creative team. They'd do 111 issues of Ultimate Spider-Man, which would eclipse the Lee Kirby uh, 102 issues on Fantastic Four. So Bendis is definitely proving here that you know he definitely has uh, chops when it comes to just traction and and you know. Sticking, sticking with the story and, and seeing it all the way through. Now, go was ahead. this issue a quarter? Wasn't some issue That's around issue this time? forty-one. Okay, we'll get to that. Yes, good memory, is, my friend. This is also Bendis is showing that he has a certain amount of um, that a certain number of creative themes that he likes to go back to because the secret identity stuff was uh, consistently a big deal in Ultimate Spider-Man. Yes, it was. Um, where he basically just couldn't keep it secret yeah. for to save his life. Um, and I, I think Bendis was just tickled by this idea of exactly how hard it would be yes. to maintain a secret identity as a superhero for any period of time uh, in, in modern-day New York. Yes. Well put, Billy. Oh, thank you. Now... Uh, this first arc, by the way, actually, before we get to the arc, we've talked about Malev. Alex Malev is going to be the penciler on Daredevil uh, with Bendis for a couple, several years here. Now, I, I've gathered this contrasting views here on his work. Now, what, what are people's thoughts on, on Malev? Personally, I loved his work on Daredevil. I thought it had a very cinematic, noirish feel to it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it was a good, perfect for the tone of the book. But Shane, you had a different view. How so? Um, for what I like out of Daredevil... For how um, everything looked up to that point, since the um, since the um, series started with Kevin Smith's run, I like that kind of style for Daredevil. A little bit more 
superhero-ish, even though mm. he has very little in the way of superpowers. Mm. I mean, even though he's ground street-level stuff uh, in New York City, um, the stuff that Malev did was so dark and so abstract to me that it really um, took away from any enjoyment that I would have gotten at that point. Now, again, once once I heard how great it was, I have interest to try and revisit it. However, um, I don't know why I liked it with the Spider-Woman stuff. It just clicked. I had interest in the character for whatever time period that was. So that that gave me some hope that, hey, I could go back and give Daredevil another try now. I've tried a couple times. It just other things get in the way that become more important. But I really did not like the feel of it for for me personally Fair when enough. it started. And actually – Coincidentally, Spider-Woman is another one of those Bronze Age characters that does really kind of reinvigorate. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. But, uh, especially in Avengers and then on the series you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, what do other people think of Malev? Quite like him. Um, I think uh, for this book, master of expression. Uh, the way the book focuses just a lot on conversations between two people in rooms. Yes. <laughs> Quite a lot. Um he, he portrays people very, very expressively and, and gets across little bits of, of, of physical behavior that are, are quite beautiful. Uh, now, as, as an artist, how... What, I'm always answering this as an artist. Yes. So you don't have to specify. But a lot of people don't know that you're an artist. <laughs> because, because you're a damn I'm talented drawn. artist. Thank you. Um, what are the challenges therein in just drawing people talking? Uh, Which you're right, he does a lot in these stories. Yeah, making people look like they're convincingly having a conversation over a period of time, yeah. too. Because you know how much, how much, how many, how many words you put in a word balloon for a given panel. You know, you have to you have to remember that each panel is is like a split second in time. Yes, but it can that split second can also last a very long time, depending on on how much how much word balloon there is. And given Bendis, it can be quite a lot of word balloon. So <laughs> what I was thinking. The art, the art has to... The art has to sync up with the words at any, at any given point. It, the, the, the person speaking has to, has to be conveying everything that they're saying in that given panel, in that given, in that given time frame. Um, and that can, be, that can be quite challenging, especially if they're saying... Quite a few different things. Not only that, uh, well put, my friend. Thank you. I've noticed uh, as I just go through the the Bendis stuff, um, there's a lot of panels, like you said, where it's just a lot of people talking, mm-hmm. and uh, especially when there's panels where a person is not speaking and they're just they're just they're they're transmitting emotion just through their expression. Yeah, that's got to be incredibly difficult that's, to do. That uh, that might be easier, but a lot at that point, a lot hinges. Everything hinges on the artwork. Mm. Um, the entire, everything expressive about the comic is is essentially focusing on only half of what mm. comics are at any given moment, and uh, and so you have to carry everything with that artwork, and that can be a challenge. Adam, you have any thoughts on Malev as an artist? Mm. I know art art is always not your strong suit when it comes to discussion. Mm, but true, and then that thank you for being sensitive to yes. that but, uh, <laughs> uh, basically just uh, cut and paste what Shane has already said yeah. it's uh, you know, gritty smudgy sooty not at all my uh, preference for superhero artwork fair enough 
It's good for crime fiction, but again, I prefer superhero Daredevil to crime fiction Daredevil. So it, it, there harkens, you are. it harkens to like a like a Frank Miller type of art, mm-hmm. uh, which I also like. Sin City. Yeah, I, I don't like Frank Miller. Okay, there you go. I, I don't always like what he does, but I do like a lot of the tricks he'll do with light and shadow. Um, and and Malev uses a lot of those same tricks. And, oh, light and shadow, and I'm happy all day. Yeah. Give me good chiaroscuro. <laughs> My God, I'm glad you're here. I learned that in art school, chiaroscuro. I was waiting for you right. to say it. I, knew, I, knew, I, I was going to say it, but I knew damn well Billy's going to utter it and he did. Contrast of uh, lights and darks, right? Yes, exactly. Shadow play. Yes. Uh, yeah. Sweet knees, I'm glad you're here. Now, oh, thank you, sugar plums. Huh. And, and what'd you call it? Uh, chiaroscuro. Okay. C-H-I-A-O-S-C-U-R-R-O. Chiaroscuro. Now, the first major Bendis Malev arc is called Underboss. This is issues 26 uh, through 31. And the, the, the long and short of it is that, that there's a coup against the kingpin. And this young up-and-coming thug named Sammy Silk, who his father is a big shot uh, crime lord in another city who has a business relationship with Fisk. He is at a poker game with some of the Kingpin soldiers, and he's he's astonished to find out that the Kingpin knows that Matt Murdock is Daredevil and isn't doing anything about it. In fact, the Kingpin's men tell Silk, you don't touch Murdock. No one does. And Silk's just like, are you guys kidding me? How much money does this guy cost our operation? Let's just kill him if we know who he is. And then they just said, you, you, don't, you, don't, you don't, you don't, no, no one goes near him. That's, that's, the, that's the boss. And Silk then meets up with Richard Fisk, who as longtime Marvel, students of Marvel history know, has been around since the Silver Age, mm. the Kingpin's son. And it turns out in this sort of retcon that Silk and Fisk grew up together. So they're sort of childhood uh, pals. Now, we know from Marvel history, uh, Richard Fisk has had, shall we say, a very troubled, dysfunctional relationship with his father (laughs) and has tried on more than one occasion either overthrow his father, show up his father, uh, you know, make his father proud. And, I mean, go back to the Silver Age where he was the schemer wearing a mask trying to be like a criminal rival to his father. Then he was a, a sort of a third-rate, uh, low-rent Supreme Hydra for a Hydra faction operating out of Las Vegas. It was actually controlled by his father behind the scenes in the Bronze Age. Was, his father didn't know that his son was the Supreme Hydra. Most famously, he became the Rose, which Bendis does, wow. Bendis does mention That's in right. continuity. He does mention the Rose in the story. Who was in – this is the great 1980s Spider-Man era. Yeah. Yep. Where White the, suit, purple head yep, mask. Great purple head mask. Great. The Rose was a lieutenant who then went out on his own. And working with the Hobgoblin, these, yeah. these are great Spider-Man it's stories. It's around 289 of the Amazing Spider-Man, yeah, in that I think. Area. He challenged – he first appeared in the 250s, the Rose. I want to say 253. He challenged the Kingpin for hegemony over the criminal underworld. This is the gang war storyline. And again, he was Richard Fisk incognito. Now, what's interesting here is by this time period – because Richard Fisk, as he was portrayed in the old days, was blonde, handsome, kind of strapping, you know, formidable. Here he's this broken down drunk. He's unattractive. He does not – the years have not been kind to him, the way Malev portrays him. And Silk is able to convince Richard, look, 
your father's treated you so badly all these years. Let's let's kill him. And they convince some of the kingpin's lieutenants to go along with it. And it's kind of like and, – and Silk is actually quoting Julius Caesar. And again, it's like they're, they're overthrowing the emperor here. And they stab Fisk seemingly to death. And these first few wishes of Underboss, Ben and Sibilev go back and forth in time. So they're, they're, they're catching up on parts of the story at different parts of time. But it all comes together nicely uh, ultimately. And it turns out that Vanessa is so horrified because Wilson Fisk does not die, of course, but he's, he's in terrible shape. And when she finds out her son has betrayed her husband, she actually murders her own son. This is this is this is gritty, edgy stuff, to say the least. And she confronts her son. She shoots and kills him. And she orders Silk's death. And Silk actually goes to the FBI. And the FBI says, "Look, you got now. You got nothing here for us. We're not going to give you protection." He said, "If you your father's a big wig, so let your father. We'll give you protection." I can't do that. And they said, "Well, then, what good are you are you to us?" He said, "I know who Daredevil is." And the FBI are like, really? And he starts to make the case that Matt Murdock is Daredevil. Now, the FBI basically say, you know what? We're not, we don't believe this guy, and if it is true, Daredevil's done too much good. We're not going to expo- expose this. And but, we just cleared that. What's that? And we just cleared that. <laughs> but one FBI agent is as the, the same old story is, is down on his luck, money, marriage, so forth, and he – sells this information, even though it's not verified, to – anybody remember the longstanding competitor to the Daily Bugle? Mm-hmm. Murd? The Daily Globe. I know you'd know it. Well, <sighs> it's right here in your nose, but uh. – It doesn't matter, Murd. It doesn't matter. Murd, you got to – let me give you those setups. Come on. Oh, yeah. Oh, there it is. <laughs> Daily Globe. The Daily Globe. <laughs> You're just trying to make me look good. <laughs> My friend, you do that all on your own. Now, so when we get to issue 32, which begins the arc known as simply out uh, – Matt wakes up to find – in fact, they go. They start with Foggy going to his, his local newsstand in Manhattan, and he's horrified to see that Matt is – Matt Murdock's pictures on the front page of the Daily Globe, and they're declaring that he is Daredevil. And his – even though it's not been verified, it's now out in this new 21st century multimedia world. And as Bill mentioned before – one of the key themes of this whole arc, this whole run by Bendis and Eleven Daredevil is, and the same thing in Ultimate Spider-Man, how would someone really do this? Like how would you actually protect your secret identity, especially if you're a public superhero in a world now that has the internet and, and online media? And this is, this is even before – we haven't gotten to Twitter yet or anything. Yeah. This, this is early 2000s. So they're going to have a lot of, lot of fun with this to say the least. Now – over the next few issues, it's just Matt dealing with the fallout of the world now assumes he is Daredevil. The media is camped out in front of his brownstone. He and Foggy are besieged everywhere they go. Um, at one point, Mr. Hyde shows up in his, trying to smash through his brownstone with a car because he's determined that Matt come out and face him because, you know, I fought the mighty four. I, you know, he's outraged that Daredevil has bested him in the past. He's a blind lawyer. Um, issue 34 – uh, classic J. Jonah Jameis, which Bendis writes very well. He is enraged that the Daily Globe, which he considers a rag beneath the feet of the Daily Bugle, <laughs> has scooped the paper with this news, and he's demanding his reporters meet rise to the challenge. 
And Ben Yurick says, look, he says, this is this is a crap story. I, I want nothing to do with it. And then he says, by the way, I know who Daredevil is. Silence in the room. It's not Matt Murdock. And I'm not going to tell you who it is. And then he and Jonah get in this – this is where I really thought – I like, wow, I love Bendis as a writer. I already loved him. But it was these kinds of scenes where you can tell in the, in the dialogue that Jameson, even though he's enraged, he does respect Ben Yurick. And in the end, he does not fire when Yurick says, I'm just not going to tell you. Because he said, Jonah, you know in this business, if you give up your sources, you have no integrity and you're totally compromised. I'm not telling you who Daredevil is. Isn't, it, wasn't there a line in it that it was a big argument between them and Ben Yurick goes, this isn't news. Yes. Well put. This Bill. is not yes. news. Yes. This is tabloid BS. Yes. Good memory, my friend. Thank you. And then Peter Parker also shows up at the newsroom and says, yeah, he said, you know, he supports Ben and – and they, Ben and Peter both realize they each know who Daredevil actually is. Peter goes, as a superhero myself, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> All these years, Jonah. Jameson throws a coffee mug at <laughs> Has not been Civil War yet. No, that's not correct. Yet. This no. is pre-Civil War. First Spider-Man! So. <laughs> I'll make him infamous! <laughs> God, I missed you. Damn. All right, now. That might be the best J. Jonah Jameson we're ever going to get. Oh, you're not kidding. Oh, J.K. Simmons? Yeah. Oh, he's yeah. tremendous. He was fabulous. I, I don't think I'll give you some Christmas meat. I love that. <laughs> total sidebar. I love that he does it on the cartoons, too, sometimes. Oh, That's he? right. Oh, he's yeah. awesome. Spider-Man. Yeah. That's right. Call the caterer. Okay, now. <laughs> <laughs> he was a perfect J. Jonah Jameson. He really was. Yeah, he was. Now, Bendis uh, writes a good J.J.J. And, again, what's great about the Jameson character when you think about it, he's one of the most well-realized characters in the history of Marvel Comics because he's such a prick in so many ways. And, 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 no, and every writer will, will return to that. But the most discerning writers also remind you that he, he does have his own form of integrity mm. and that he's not, he's not a bad person. He's just – he's so pig-headed in his, in his ideology that – he won't allow, in, with rare exceptions, anyone to sort of penetrate the bubble of that ideology. And it makes him, in many ways, a complete and utter douchebag. Yeah. Um, but there, there is a kernel of redemption there, though, beneath all that. And uh, in these scenes, these were scenes that were really, for me, emphasized. What I love about Bendis' writing is that he captures these conversational moments. I think that's his strength as a writer. Sometimes very mundane situations that are incredibly captivating. As Bill was saying before, it's, that's really hard to make compelling in terms of the visual art of the comic book, just people talking. And uh, I, think, I think he pulls it off well here. Now, Foggy, what, what ben, Bendis also does in these stories, he really emphasizes how woebegone and put upon it is to be Matt Murdock's best friend. And, uh, you know, Foggy, is, who we know now since before these issues, knows that Matt is Daredevil. After I don't know how many decades, he's finally figured out that Matt is Daredevil. And he's trying to convince Matt to quit. He's saying, Matt, look, he says, maybe this is a sign, this is issue 34. Just let's hang it up. And, you know, and, and Matt basically tells me, goes, look, he said, this is who I am. You know, I, I can't just stop being daredevil and his father and all that happened and so forth so he's determined to persevere and boy bendis is going to make him pay for it now issue 35 as i mentioned is so much fun with mr hyde who comes up blowhard pontificating classic supervillain 
demanding. He's outraged that he's been bested by this blind lawyer, and there's a great panel of him trying to smash a car through the front door of Matt Murdock's brownstone. And uh, Spidey shows up once again, maintaining that partnership, that connection, and uh, in, in full bantering form. And he and Daredevil team up and defeat Hyde. And then Matt gives a press conference. He publicly denies that he's Daredevil. He says, I'm not Daredevil. He refuses to acknowledge it. And he flat out denies it. Now, just to give us a little, and I know Shane would especially appreciate this, just a little time warp to show where comics were. This issue 36. The cover indicates Best Writer Award from Wizard and CBG. <laughs> God, I loved Wizard back in the day. We all read it. Come oh, on. Yeah. This cover is, to uh, cover. Yep. Early 2000s. Yeah. And the, I love the Comic Buyer's Guide. In fact, for years, Wild Pick Comics had ran an ad in the, in the, in the oh, Comic yeah? Buyer's Guide. Yep. Nice. In their comic shop directory. Now, for those who don't remember or didn't know, CBG was a around for years. It was a sort of like – I guess you call it a newspaper yeah. style. I got a newspaper of it when I lived at yeah. home with my parents for and, years. And uh, it was weekly. Yeah. Uh, it, it folded open like, like a newspaper style magazine mm-hmm. essentially. And uh, it was one of the preeminent comic book journals uh, for years, started by Don and Maggie Thompson. Peter uh, David had a great column in it, yeah. but I digress. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously, it, for whatever reason, maybe it fell prey to the, 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 the fading of print publications. I'm pretty sure Jamie got that for years yeah. and oh, years. Yeah. He spoke fondly of the but I digress column. Yeah, yeah I loved did. it. Not, I, I carried it in the store for years. So it just shows where comics, you know, these were the publications people were reading when it yeah. came to news about comics uh, at that time. Now, uh, there's a great scene where the Black Widow resurfaces, and she walks into Matt's office so well disguised, Foggy has no idea who she is until she removes her wig and so forth because she, she is the super spy. And she tries to get Matt to come out and dance, which means have a, go out on patrol with me. And again, they always maintain that sexual undertone there. And he, he refuses. He's too consumed with all he's dealing with right now. And Bendis and Malev are already establishing how suffocating it's going to be for Matt to try to exist now when his, his dual identities are, are exposed this way. And Vanessa leaves the country and sells off the Kingpin's empire. And she and Matt have this wonderful sort of farewell dinner, very chilling, uh, in a gloomy, uh, gothic-like setting. And uh, Matt alludes to the fact that he alludes to the fact that Vanessa has killed her own son um, without directly impl- implicating her in it. But it's, it's, a, it's a powerful moment. And uh, issue 37 is one of my favorite issues of the entire Bendis era. It is a classic encounter with Elektra. In this story, the Daily Globe decide to take Matt to court uh, because Matt meets with uh, the, the, the publisher of the Globe – and the Globe is offered to, to settle because they realize they can't prove that he is actually Daredevil, although they've outed him around the world. And again, we often have to remember that Matt Murdock – this is why I always find Matt Murdock one of the most compelling of all the Marvel characters because sometimes Matt Murdock is a real dick. And Matt Murdock is, is for me, sort of one of the most human heroes because he's not always likable in the way he conducts himself, and even though he's ultimately a noble person, but he's, he's human. And, and a lawyer. Yes. Well put, Billy. And in this scene, Murdoch is a little a little arrogant with the, the publisher. And uh, the publisher says, you know what? 
screw it. I am going to, I, I am going to sue you. I am taking you to court. I'm, I'm going to drag you through the mud, whether, you know, we can prove it's you were dared over or not just because, you know, the way you're dealing with me here. And Matt then, the Black Widow, through her espionage channels, then summons Elektra to come and see Matt. Now, Elektra, as we all know, was resurrected way back at the end of the Miller run. She then was involved in that train wreck of a storyline known as uh, Fall from Grace, mm. where they further emphasize her resurrection. She'd been used very poorly, in my opinion, since then in various appearances. Um, there was a solo series in there in the late 90s, as I recall. There was a couple solo series. Yeah, the most recent Milligan one was... One uh, oh, sorry. About the, Peter Milligan wrote one of them. That's, yeah. Then that's there was one Bendis was involved in, in Greg Rucka. That was pretty solid. Pants was raving about the latest one, which I have not read. The latest one, yeah. I didn't read all of it, but uh, what I did read was, was quite good. That's what I heard? Yeah. Okay, so the second person told me that's excellent. So, so in this issue, issue 37... Electra appears on the rooftop, and she barely speaks. She's al- the way they they create they portray her. She's almost an ethereal presence. You you question, not that she's not real, but you know she's she's otherworldly. Just her demeanor. She barely says anything. It's just Matt, sort of pouring his heart out about a situation, and he's also remembering and thinking about when they were young lovers in college and how perfect it seemed to be and so forth. He's also cursing. Natasha as, as the world's worst ex-girlfriend for bringing in another ex-girlfriend. It's a great, great uh, narrative thought captions by, by Bendis. And then there's let – me, let me get the, the issue actually because it's best if I do it justice by, uh, by reading it. But it's so well done. Getting once – ah, here we go. Oh, beautiful artwork. And he's Matt is pouring his heart out to her. Now, as Matt is speaking to her, he says, See, I think her plan, Natasha's plan here, was that just the sight of you would jar me, stab me out of what she thinks is some funk I'm in. Remind me why I'm daredevil, or the woman has known me half my life, she doesn't know me at all. Then he's thinking to himself as he's speaking to, to Electra, Be quiet. Stop embarrassing yourself. She's not your friend. Why won't you shut up? She's not your priest. Let's go back to the priest when it comes to Matt Murdock. <laughs> Don't do it. Don't embarrass yourself again. And don't you do it. And then he says something about their past when they were lovers. Then he thinks to himself, and you did it. And then you go, Natasha, wherever you are, you are the single worst ex-girlfriend that ever existed. And coming from me, that is saying something. <laughs> but so Electra just leaves. They have this brief sort of enigmatic interaction. It's just Matt kind of pouring his heart out to her. She says very little. But I love this reference to such an important part of Daredevil's history, which is Elektra and her central role in the formation of the Matt Murdock character. And I've, I've been, I think I've heard reports that they're casting Elektra for next, the next Daredevil yes. Netflix season. Yep. As I anticipated. Excellent. So this issue for me is, is, is one of the benchmarks of the Bendis run because it's a wonderful uh, tip of the hat to the Daredevil's history, but also very much rooting in what's going on with that character right now and how just – torn in different directions he is by the, the fact that he's been outed. Now, issue 38, 39, and 40, we've talked before about Bendis' love of the Bronze Age, and he very much indulges that here because three characters are brought in the book, all of whom have had, well, at least two have had history at Daredevil 4, Power Man and Iron Fist, the legendary street-level team, Luke Cage, 
and Danny Rand, who will be also getting Netflix series uh, in the not-too-distant future, as other street-level Marvel characters Netflix is going to focus on. And they come to Matt and say, look, the White Tiger has been falsely accused of murder. Please defend him. Now, Murray, you want to remind us who the White Tiger is? Now, the White Tiger was another 70s uh, creation, another street-level superhero. His name was Hector Ayala. He was from Puerto Rico, and he had uh, a little amulet shaped like a, a jade tiger's paw that uh, gave him powers of some kind. Uh, I don't believe he was. Or was the, was the amulet from Kung? The amulet may have been. Yeah, I, I, think I, I don't know its origin, but uh, yeah, uh, the White Tiger himself did not come from there. No. No. The amulet gave him an, an enhanced. I think it just enhanced his natural abilities, his strength, agility, and so forth. He first appeared, I want to say, in Spectacular Spider-Man in the late 1970s. He had a scattering of appearances, but you know, again, one of Marvel's earlier attempts at a minority character because he's a Latino character. I remember reading him in, in uh, Power Man books that I had when I was a kid. Excellent, Billy. Oh, I'm finding here that uh, he was created by Bill Mantlo, or co-created at yes. least. Yes. Yeah, this, now, the, the artist, uh, this I had known, Bill Mantlo I hadn't, but uh, George Perez. Thank and you, Murd. Well done, sir. It was in the black and white magazine, The Deadly Hands of Kung Fu. Ah, uh, yes, which also featured the Sons of the Tiger, mm-hmm. which were the... the uh, team of kung fu, young kung fu enthusiasts who would often work with Power Man and Iron Fist and so forth. Uh, now, it turns out that the White Tiger decided to return. He, he was off the radar. He decided to return as a uh, street-level street crime fighter, and he stumbles into a situation where two thugs are, holding, are, are stealing a TV set from a pawn shop. A policeman intervenes. The policeman is shot and killed by one of the thugs, when the other policemen arrive, the white tiger has arrived. He, he tries to stop the thugs. He fails. And the police walk in just as he's holding the TV set with the dead cop at his feet. So it looks bad. And Luke and Danny go to the math. They go, look, <clears throat> I know you're going through all this stuff, but Hector needs the best person possible. It's you. Uh, you know what he's going through. You have to defend him. So Matt agrees with Foggy. And it's a gripping three-issue storyline where they, they go they, it's a court there's a courtroom drama they're trying to explore and again they really emphasize Matt Murdock's skills as a lawyer and how Ian Foggy are trying to prove that he's innocent um, you know they, they emphasize how Matt uses his hearing to, to discern what, what the jury is thinking like their heartbeats and you know so they really go into all that very well and ultimately the media and everything is against the white tiger and, and they, Bendis is also exploring the impact now of the, the, the growing sort of omnipresence of the media in our society it, with the new technologies and how, and how it's, it's shaping people's views of this hero, the White Tiger, essentially. And he's found guilty, even though he's innocent. He's totally distraught. Uh, his wife is going to leave him. And he grabs a gun. He goes out on the front steps. And he basically allows the police to kill him. He commits suicide, essentially. And Sam Murder, I'm, I'm trying to imagine you reading the story and what you would have thought of it because it's Bendis killing off another character. Uh, who comes from a very, a very different era from of Marvel history. And uh, go ahead. Uh, well, I haven't read it, so I can't okay. uh, give my personal reaction, yeah. but I do have a, a brief anecdote to Please. tell about it, though, and it's, which uh, reveals to us that Bendis uh, took this kind of lightly, at, at first at least. Mm. Um, I think a, it was an interview possibly in Wizard with mm. uh, Quesada, <clears throat> who said that uh, 
uh, Brian Bendis had uh, asked him about uh, killing off White Tiger and uh, saying, yeah, yeah, he's just this, this old forgotten nothing of a character. Nobody cares about White Tiger. Let, let, let me kill him. I'm going to kill him. And uh, Quesada said, well, all right, fine, uh, but uh, first uh, go uh, talk to George Perez about it. See, this is how I know that George Perez created the character ah. because, uh, well, because uh, it was mentioned in his, in his interview. And, and Quesada said, you know, this, uh, Perez created this character. It's sort of important to him, so uh, you, you go and uh, clear it with him first. And uh, that apparently sobered uh, Bendis up a little mm. bit. So, you know, it, it's... It's great that he uh, pushed characters like Luke Cage and Iron mm. Fist back into the spotlight and Spider-Woman, too. But uh, uh, to characterize him as a uh, uh, benevolent, uh, reverent custodian of uh, Marvel's Bronze Age mm. is not entirely accurate. Because mm. here's you know, one of the uh, less fortunate sons of that period that he was just perfectly willing to throw under the bus for the sake of a story. Although he did then bring back a new white tiger, though. So maybe that was a way to uh, balance it out. Perhaps. Perhaps, yes. Yeah. Just to you know, sow where you reap, I suppose. Yeah. And how, then, many, how many white tigers have there been since... Kind of a lot. Since the story. 74. Been, I remember. <laughs> That's a lot of white tigers. And in fact, That's Shane will know that the white tigers now on, have been on the Ultimate Spider-Man cartoon. Yeah. Female yeah. white tiger. Right. So, yeah, female white tiger was created by some kind of uh, novelist lady who hadn't done much work in comics and came in and created this new female white tiger for a miniseries, I think. That I don't recall off the top of my head. Do not remember the details. Someone could help us on the forms of that. But I, as a kid, the thought that I would ever see the White Tiger in an animated series, yeah. you know, that is just an example of how, whether you like it or not, how massively present Marvel is now in, in That series media. is great. It's fun. I, I haven't watched it in a long time, but yeah. those I saw, it's, it's still, they're still producing new ones now, yeah. correct? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Has Daredevil appeared in that show? I don't think so. Okay. Not, I haven't seen every one of them, but I don't think he has. All right, now, Shane, you mentioned this before. Issue 41 is only 25 cents on the cover. the only reason I bought yes, it. Yes, because... I don't even know if I ever read it, but I bought <laughs> at least two. <laughs> yeah. Because why not? It's 25 cents. <laughs> I might that, even have bought that issue. Yeah, actually. how do you pass that up? That is, uh, you know, people were excited about that. and uh, I mean, I, and that was kind of in response to DC's Batman 10-cent issue, and then, and then Batman, I Superman had a 10-cent issue. There one, was a, one was 12 cents, and one was 10 cents. Something cent, was 12. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There, there was a bunch of... That Mark Waid and Mike Waringo Fantastic Four had a 9-cent nine nine cent, issue. Yeah. yeah. All yeah. kinds of crazy, cheapo comics for an issue here and there. Well, they're trying to out-promote each other. That's the game. Heck yeah. But um, I think they tried to make these... Whether or not they succeeded, I can't say. But I think the idea was to make these jumping on points. Yeah. Now, we've seen this many times as oh, readers yeah. where companies were jumping on point, perfect point to jump on, you know, so you can try to penetrate the labyrinth of continuity in some of these titles. Yeah. So um, this issue was a, a very fun merge, Stiltman appearance. Stiltman. Yeah, I remember the scene where he uh, bursts into the offices of Nelson and Murdoch and dumps his Stiltman gear on the desk and yep. says, you know, look, I've, I've had enough of this. I got a kid. Things are getting too tough in this city. I'm getting out. Yep. <laughs> he says, look, he says, he goes to Matt Murdoch. He says, look, and Matt's like, look, I'm not. He says, look, I, I, I don't care. Here's the armor. I'm done. It's too violent. It's too difficult now, you know. And I'm he, not letting those cappers cheese me. Yeah, and he's, he's alluding to how bad the streets have become and how, how hard it is to make a living as, as an honest criminal, so to speak. Is it Wilbur <laughs> honest criminal, An honest criminal with Wilbur really Day, long right? legs. That was the original stilt man, yeah. yeah, but I'm not entirely sure if this was Wilbur Day, and I'm pretty sure Bendis wasn't sure either. Why do you say that? It just didn't sound like Wilbur Day to me. Mm. Believe it or not, he, he has a personality. He was a scientist. Oh, he's been around time. a long time. Yeah. So he th- gives his equipment to Matt. 
And we find out the owl has taken over the kingpin's empire. And the owl is a long-standing daredevil villain. Mm. He says, this is the guy that uh, Vanessa Fisk sold the empire to? Or I don't know if she sold to him or if he acquired it somehow anyway. But he is now making his play to be the, the dominant underworld figure in New York City. Now, the, this is the owl when he looks more owl-like. He looks more like an actual, you know, bird person than he has in the past because right. – did you say, Merv, that he metamorphosized over time essentially? Yeah, that special chemical he'd been taking to allow him to defy gravity and fly mm-hmm. had uh, taken its toll on his physiology, did, you know, degenerated him a little bit. Yeah, it, it, it did sort of mutate him. Yeah, yeah. So, so he's, I remember – the, I'm pretty sure I do have this issue, this 25 cent issue, because Stilt Man, the Owl, and a quarter. So <laughs> that was a trifecta that Murd couldn't pass up. Yeah, and yes, All you're right. right. The owl was looking very owlish. He had this big, crazy, yep. flyaway, feathery red hair sprouting out of all sides of his head. <laughs> and again, he wasn't talking very much like Leland Owsley. Well, what when you say talking like Leland Owsley, how do you think he should be portrayed then in that in that sense? Um, a bit of a patrician, you yeah. know. He was a, he was a businessman, a respectable person, and Bendis just has a habit of writing too many characters to sound like, you know, street level gunsels. That's a fair point. I would agree with yeah, that. It's his level of education and his well, self pride, his sense of dignity wasn't quite expressed, and it didn't come through in the dialogue that Bendis wrote for him in that issue. Interesting when you think about how they use Leland Owsley in the Netflix series, when he's very much that businessman. Yes, that's, um, that is a better portrayal yeah. of Leland Owsley. Yeah. yeah, you know, all about the numbers and the bottom line and so forth. <laughs> so, we'll talk about Netflix though shortly. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, yeah. you're right. Issue forty-one is also the first appearance. I should have mentioned this in the notes, and I was I was uh, off by an issue of a very important supporting character in Daredevil's history, which is uh, Mila Donovan, who will very briefly be Matt Murdock's wife. Uh, in this era, and she's also a blind character. In issue forty-one, she gets she gets caught up in you know this always happens in the Marvel universe. She's an innocent bystander in a conflict between a, a superhero and villain or villains, and Matt actually saves her life. She's going to be hit by a truck. He uh, actually no, I'm sorry, she's just crossing the street, and uh, he happens to be there, and he flies her into a, a plate glass window, protecting her. And she, he lands on top of her, and she can feel his face. And so she, as a blind person, she now has a, a strong sensation of, of physically of who this person is, and she's heard his voice. Um, and they're going to pursue that further in subsequent issues that she decides that she she actually goes to meet Matt Murdock later on and says, look, you know, you saved my life. Matt's like, look, I'm not Daredevil, blah, blah, blah. And they start to form an actual relationship and a bond. Now, we have to remember, of course, that Karen Page just died. Mm-hmm. Brutally. <laughs> At the hands of Bullseye, second love of his life to be killed by the same man. And now you're going out dating and you're going to get married soon. That's an alarm bell, right? That when we talk about the greatest hits of Matt Murdock's fracturing psyche, this is definitely one of them uh, that we'll be addressing here. Now, in issue 42, the publisher of the Daily Globe is actually murdered. His head is torn off, not cut off. Torn off while he's swimming in his pool. That's gross. And, you know, obviously that Matt is being suspected because he and, and the Globe were involved in this legal dispute. Now, issue 43, Matt and Mila go on a date. And this is an issue I especially enjoyed because, again, the focus is on the two of them getting to know each other. She works for the Hell's, Hell's, in Hell's Kitchen trying to find people places to live. 
and it's just them uh, talking to each other. They also bring in Jessica. This, this issue is a lot of talking, which we were talking before about. That's, that's what Bennis tends to emphasize. And we, they talk about uh, Jessica Jones, who we know becomes a bodyguard for Matt Murdock uh, during this period. Because remember, Jessica Jones was a, a sort of a fallen superhero known as, as Jewel, who toppled. Yes, slightly. Toppled. She quit. Yeah, and, uh, you know she didn't. She wasn't. She just didn't think it was for her after a and, particularly well, traumatic a traumatic incident. Yes. So, which I'm sure the Netflix show is going to pick up on. Um, but she also, it just seems like she, there's a, a great moment where she thinks to herself, oh, God, I'm in love with Matt Murdock. This is Jessica Jones. It's like most women around Matt at some point are sort of drawn into this irresistible net where they feel – we'll talk about Dakota North shortly, the Marvel private eye who first appeared in the 1980s. She will also be drawn towards Matt Murdock's uh, charisma. So, Does Daredevil have another power? That we don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Aphrodisiacs. Yeah. I've got the same sort of... It's pheromone powers like yeah. Jessica Jones. Ooh. Well, he's been fighting the purple man for as long as he has. Maybe some of that mojo rubbed off Yeah, on. a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Drive the ladies wild. And... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Diggity-goo! Uh, Outstanding, Billy. Oh, my pleasure. Your posture, by the way, right now is, is very very inspiring. Sort of a, a calm, it's... composed, majestic posture. I guess that's what I was trying to strike. Yeah. A man who's confident in himself, his knowledge, his abilities. I was reading a lot about place. Stiltman <laughs> on my phone, <laughs> trying to figure out which Stiltman it was. Andre in the trenches here with his brother. <laughs> now, uh, Mia, Mia Mila is is a fully realized character. She works uh, trying to find people homes in Hell's Kitchen, helping the poor. Um, and again, this is, I think where Ben is, is his strength as a writer. Uh, you know. In very intensive conversation between these two characters, they get to know each other, and you feel that there's definitely uh, an attraction between them. Mila assures Matt that, you know, look, I'm a grown woman. I know, and even though they're not admitting it, she knows he's Daredevil, and she's basically saying, look, I, I, I'm choosing to be in these situations with you, in this maelstrom your life has become. Now, in issue 45, the owl is defeated, and the kingpin returns. And he begins to rebuild his empire from a street level and actually sends typhoid, typhoid Mary. It's typhoid, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Typhoid Mary after Matt. He sort of reactivates her. Remember, typhoid Mary has, I think, up to three different personalities. We talked about her in our last Spotlight episode. And she's, she's a very passive, meek person. Uh, she's a pro- and then she's, there's, a, there's the prostitute and then there's the psychotic assassin. Um, and she actually attacks Matt while he's on a date with Mila. Do you want to say, you want to say something about typhoid Mary? I just uh, that uh, I'd gotten sick recently because of a friend who had been passing a virus from person to person, and I called him Typhoid Mary, and he goes, "Pyrokinetic." <laughs> so, uh, I just kind of friends I, we have around here. Yeah, I kind of I kind I I get I get mildly annoyed that that she has very little to do with the actual Typhoid Mary. Who was a real person and True. kind of an idiot. I, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I Why is say. she called Typhoid Mary? Is it because of the pyrokinetic? Like, is it because typhoid gives you a fever and she controls fire? And that's about it? it seems like and a plus, I think, I think the idea is she just sort of arouses a sexual fever in. I men. guess that has not. Well, because the original one was what? A, a, 
the for real typhoid Mary was a, a woman who was a carrier of typhoid, but she didn't exhibit any of the. I'm not well versed in the history of typhoid Mary, my friend. I must admit. But uh, was she was she a prostitute, or I honestly don't know, or just a woman? <laughs> I'm sorry that sounded that sounded really wrong. That did but sound like, wrong. Yeah. That's not what I meant at right, all. And I apologize to everyone. I apologize to. <laughs> The half of the population that I just offended. Mary Mallon. not at all what I meant. Better known as Typhoid Mary was the first person in the United States identified as an asymptomatic carrier of the pathogen associated with typhoid fever. This is all courtesy of Wikipedia, of course. Uh, she was presumed to have infected 51 people, three of whom died over the course of her career as a cook. A cook. Not a prostitute at all. I was Cooking reading some other thing. can be very sexy, thing. Billy. Come on. Yeah, it can. Well, more important than what she was as a human being, she quickly became a, a living symbol, a personification of disease. Yes. Well, of, of specifically somebody who she refused to believe that, that she was doing this, even though everybody told her, no, you've given all these people typhoid. She goes, well, I, I don't have any symptoms, so I don't believe you, and refused to let them treat her for typhoid. And, uh, and that was that. <laughs> Yeah, so Billy? kind of an idiot. So the real disease here is ignorance. It, yes, yeah, kind of. It's just, she's one of those like she puts me in mind of the anti-vaccination people uh, who who come out of the woodwork these days. What I, one of the main reasons I love you being here, besides the fact that I just love you, is these wonderful. You can make these tangents work within the confines of the topic we're addressing. Magnificent, sir. Oh, thank you. I, besides the fact that I trip over myself uh, like an idiot and, oh. and, and say horrible things like, <laughs> Well, was she, a, was she a prostitute or just a woman? Billy, I find your oratory inspired, uh -huh. elegant, and refined. Okay. We've well, all stuck our foot squarely in our mouths many yes. times over the years, Bill. That's for sure. And shall continue to do so for many more. Uh, Indeed. All right, dab, now, dab, dab, and we're good. <laughs> issue 48, uh, Matt has brought in both Luke Cage and Jessica Jones to act as bodyguards. We have to remember that Matt is trying to maintain the public fiction that he is not Daredevil. In fact, reporters ask him questions like, you know, what, what color is my sweater? He says, like, nice try, or they're, they're constantly trying to trip him up so that he reveal the fact. Because obviously people, people think, well... He must be faking his blindness. There's that, that irony that the people don't think that, well, if he's daredevil, he obviously cannot be blind. <laughs> so Ben is making the commentary here, well, wait a minute. Just because he's disabled doesn't mean he can't actually perform these extraordinary feats. But people automatically assume, well, he, he, he has to be faking his blindness, obviously. Now, Bullseye comes back. Bullseye. And he and Matt will have a knockdown dragon issue 49 where Matt will defeat him and carve a tattoo into his forehead. Um... Which may or may not have anything to do with what Colin Farrell had on his forehead. It was forehead too close, too close for my taste. In the movie, I can't say for sure, but that certainly wouldn't surprise me. Right. Um, I think it is 2003. Yes, which is when the movie came out. We'll be talking about the movie at the end of our episode. I'm looking forward to having a, a spirited discussion, a brief one on that movie in the place of Daredevil's history as a character. Brief, we can give you. <laughs> <laughs> You've seen it, haven't you? Uh, yeah, but I haven't seen it since 2003, so my memories are kind of distant well, and dim. But that's the best kind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Remember the good times, all five minutes of running time of them. <laughs> <laughs> Issue 50, and then they're going to break, and Mac will come back uh, for uh, five issues. 
Matt declares himself the kingpin of Hell's Kitchen. Now, not, and I remember the issue cover where he's kind of perched, sort of slouched like in a throne in his Daredevil costume with no, with no cowl on, though. Yeah. And he's not turned into a life of crime. He's made clear, though, that they're, they're, I am now running Hell's Kitchen. There is no crime in Hell's Kitchen because I'm in charge, essentially. Remember, going back to the beginning of Daredevil's history, everything is anchored by Hell's Kitchen. Foswell's gym, the experience with his father, the kids calling him Daredevil, at which they meant, meant pejoratively when he, when he was a child. All of that is in Hell's Kitchen. That's, and Miller captures that very well in The Man Without Fear miniseries with John Romita Jr. we talked about. Uh, in the previous episodes. That, that's, that's the core of his being. Now, issues 51 and 55 is David Mack comes back. He does another Echo storyline where uh, they go into the Kingpin's history with Echo, how he almost has almost like a fatherly love for her because she, she, he helped raise her because we find out that he actually murdered her father. I think he did actually. And they, they, just, they further flesh her out as a character. As Murd mentioned, Echo will appear in other series. She'll appear in New Avengers, where she'll be the – which is also Bendis' writing, where she'll be the first Ronin character. I'm not sure where Echo is today. Anybody know? Nope. Nope, nope, nope. Shredding deadly over here. I, I could look it up, but did, did, didn't she die in the Ronin persona? I have a, I I have a feeling yes. she's, she's – Currently deceased. Double check for me, please. Echo. Issue 56, Bendis and Malev return. And they bring in the Yakuza, which is the Japanese uh, underworld. And they are trying to make a play against Hell's Kitchen. And uh, Matt is defending his territory. In issue 57, one of the more ill-advised decisions Matt's made in his personal life, and there are many, he he and Mila get married in issue 57. Now... Here's the problem with that. One, Matt is still dealing with the fact that even though it's not been proven, most people assume he's Daredevil. So he's dealing with all of that, the effect it has on his, his, his law firm with Foggy, just his place of residence, his ability to move freely without being harassed throughout the city, the impact will have on everyone around him. Villains like Mr. High want to come after him. So there's, there's serious implications to deal with here if you're going to marry someone yeah. in this case. Now, in issue 59, Foggy believes that Matt is having a nervous breakdown over the death of Karen, which would make sense because Karen died not that long ago in terms of comic book time. Sure. And the question is, you know, the process of grief can be a long and tricky one, and it it affects everybody differently. And the question Foggy – because Foggy's concern is – are you really over Karen? I mean, she died in your arms. She was murdered by the same guy who murdered your first great love. Um, so there's all that back to do with now you're getting married? Matt, really? And Foggy does tell Mila about Karen. And the next issue, Mila leaves Matt because she feels, you know, how uh, – there's just too much to this. There's too much sure. baggage. There's too much, you know, th- what this man is dealing with. Um, and, and again – what makes, I think, Daredevil such a, a com- complex and, and satisfying character to read in, in terms of his continuity is there's elements of the character that deal with guilt, that deal with grief in ways that are very adult and very sophisticated because it's not neatly tied up. It's not all a bow when everything's fine at the end of the issue. There's fallout from these decisions he's making that will go on for issue after issue. 
And poor Mila, who is a decent, bright, attractive young woman, is going to get sucked up into all of this, into Daredevil's world with terrible consequences. Now, in issue 61, Mila asks for an annulment. And Matt, Matt says, no. And this is where they bring in Matt's Catholicism. No, marriage is sacred. I will not annul this marriage. And Fox is like, look, Matt, you'll show that you love her by doing this. Just sign the paper. Um, and we find out that, that, that the Black Widow comes to Matt seeking protection because the U.S. government, they got into a sticky situation with the Bulgarian government, and they want to trade the Black Widow for Madame Hydra or the Viper. And Natasha goes to Matt for protection. It's, it's a fun four-issue story. Any, any Daredevil Black Widow story is great in my view. And there's, a, there's especially a wonderful issue uh, – I don't have the page in front of me – where during that four issues – this is issue 61 through 64, beautiful two-page spread by uh, Malev of, of Natasha and Matt as Daredevil and the Black Widow attacking Jigsaw simultaneously. The Black Widow arching back like in a ballet pose, Matt going forward with his billy club, both just smashing him in the face essentially. It's fantastic vintage Daredevil Black Widow uh, imagery. And – Matt and the widow work together, and, and they're able to get her off the sanction list. And, and Matt finally says, "All right, you know what? I'm going to give Mila her annulment." And he he lets her he sets her free, essentially. Unfortunately, her trial is not over. I have Please, information: sir. Maya Lopez uh, died in, at the hands of Count Nefaria in Moon Knight, Volume Four, Number Nine, March 2012. Which is also a Bendis Malev. There we go. Book. So he had that character from start to finish then, didn't he? Well, Mac created her. Yeah. It's really and more of a David Mac character. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, okay. Sure. hope he got Mac's blessing before he did that. <laughs> <laughs> you said Bendis. is the Bendis Moon Knight, right? I guess so. Yeah. I had volume 4, number 9. Yeah, that's, Somebody I'm can pretty sure well. that's the Bendis Malev Moon Knight. It's definitely not the Warren Ellis yeah. Moon Knight. No. So. Uh... This, yeah, that, that was the Moon Knight when Moon Knight was having extreme uh, identity, yeah, the dissociative identity disorder problems, and, and he was talking with heroes who weren't there yeah, and so forth, thinking yeah. he was Spider Man and Wolverine right. and so on. Huh. Did you read that series? No, I didn't. Did you read it, Shane? I might have read a couple issues because I'm sure Kevin had mentioned it was interested yeah. in it, so I picked up a couple issues because of that. I did the same, but I, I didn't stay with it. Now, neither did I. <laughs> Funnily Moon Knight's that character that you, you just want to stay with him yeah. over and over again. It just you know. Now it, this current series, I've stuck with. I haven't read them all, but I've I've been getting them because the first four or five issues really grabbed me in a positive way. It was great. Oh, the Warren Ellis, and then we go into the Brian Wood Moon Knight. I thought was tremendous, but then they both left. Will Ellis left, then Wood left, and honestly, I didn't stay with it. Couldn't, Maybe it's still couldn't, good. Couldn't keep a creative team on that. Book no, no, not at all. To to. to Save their life. So, but I mean, just to see if they ever use Moon Knight in their new cinematic world, yeah. slash television, that, that could be interesting. <sighs> Bill is. <laughs> I mean, I've never been that into a character. He seems like he seems like bad Batman with bad personal multiple personality disorder, which is which is really hard to do in any sort of context like this because it is an actual thing that people have, and it sucks and. Is is far stranger than than comic books give it credit for. Well, I wish Kevin were here. You know, I mean, I wish Kevin were here. Period. But yeah. he's a, he's he and Matt are both huge Moon Knight fans. Yes, they are. Um, 
I think Moon Knight, when he's written, like the, those last issues we read, uh, the, the Ellis and the Brian Wood stuff, when you really explore the Egyptian mysticism combined with his mental issues, it can be very compelling comics. Um, but it, it, it's not – I agree with you, Bill. It's not an easy thing to capture and maintain over, over mm-hmm. the life yeah. of a series. If they so, adapted it to television or movies, they might just choose to uh, leave that aspect of the character out altogether. That, that would probably be for the best, I yeah. think. Yeah. I think the, that, the conscious I think stuff or the mental the mental, the mental, the mental, mental illness, illness yeah. stuff? Well, I – I think they could do it and give it gravitas, but it, it, it's, it seems to be one of the main challenges of the character it is to is to is to do the mental issue. The the I mean, it is it's split personality disorder in his case, right? That he has uh, three personalities as well. Yep, they started off as just uh, personas he used, he used for to... his, as a mercenary and as a sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I apologize. Oh yeah, just to. To, to further his work as Moon Knight, as a vigilante. It was kind of yeah. like a Matches Malone to Batman. Exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. And it uh, kind of uh, snowballed from there. Uh, right. Really. I, and certainly your, your point about to him being seeming like bad Batman it seems valid because Chuck Dixon, who wrote a lot of Moon Knight stories as well as a lot of Batman stories, mm-hmm. uh, admitted that uh, Moon Knight would have to stand on a chair to kiss Batman's butt. Yeah. <laughs> his, his words. Uh, but uh, enough people the out costume. there... Oh, yes, 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 which is uh, silver, not white, as Kevin yes. would, would hasten to point out if you were here. But there are a lot of people who see something more than Maybe just because he's so cool-looking. They want there to be more to him than just a, a Batman knockoff who got to start hunting werewolves, you know. Yeah. Um, so, so lots of creators have tried hard to find whatever oh, deeply buried element there is in, in Moon Knight that, that makes him cool, that makes him live up to... The coolness of his appearance. It is because the appearance is phenomenal. He he looks like the specter whose name he bears. He, he <laughs> the the whole hooded thing with the flaring moon shaped cape is, and and just an all silver costume. Oh, how daring! <laughs> you have to get into the fashion of it. An appropriate so. tangent because Moon Knight is is, is another. Often grouped with Daredevil and Pamer and Iron Fist, White Tiger. These, these are the street-level characters yep. of the Marvel Universe, yeah, essentially. Marvel Knights, if yes. you will. Also written by Chuck Dixon. Yes, that's right. Now, issue 66 begins the storyline known as Golden Age. And this one I enjoyed thoroughly. Uh, this re- explores the first so-called kingpin of crime, Alex Bont, who is re- rem- remembering his first encounter with Daredevil when Daredevil was in his original costume. So the yellow, black, and red costumes. So you get to see Malev draw that. Um, and then they bring it back to the present where Bond is trying to draw Daredevil out to gain revenge on him. Issue 69 brings the, the new white tiger who is a relative of Hector Alea. It's, it's a woman, uh, Del Toro. I forgot her first name. Angela, I think. Thank you. Well, I think it was a government agent, if I remember correctly. Um, she, 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 gets, she inherits the amulet from Hector, because Hector allowed himself to be killed at the end, end of his tragic uh, trial. And this issue also features a flashback story where they show Daredevil, Spider-Man, and the White Tiger, the original, fighting Dr. Octopus. So it's that fun callback to Marvel's Bronze Age era. Um, issue 70, the White Tiger rescues Matt from Alexander Bond, this first so-called kingpin of crime. So she starts to become a character in her own right. And uh, both Bendis... Bendis will use her. Uh, she'll appear in, in the Daredevil, in, uh, unfortunate, into the unfortunate Shadowland uh, storyline, which we'll talk about shortly. Now, 71, I think, is one of the most interesting arcs that Bendis and Malev do. It's called Decalogue. Do you remember this one, Bill? 
I'm actually looking on. Hold on. Can I read it? The, it goes from issue 71 through 75. And it's about a support group of New Yorkers, everyday people who meet to discuss how you know they've been caught up in interactions with the Daredevil and how it's affected their lives. I don't remember this one yeah. off, the, off the top of it's, my It's head. great. And each issue focuses on members of the group discussing their experiences. Now, we, we f- figure out eventually that Matt is actually – in the group as well, incognito. And he's there because I think we find out there is a demon possessing the jester here, Murd. And Matt is trying to draw that demon out. And he also admits publicly to the people in this group that, yes, I am Daredevil. I am sitting here among you and I am Daredevil. So it's Bendis exploring, again, the impact of... Matt Murdock's life on people he wouldn't even necessarily consider. Everyday people who, like Amelia Donovan, are caught up in his adventures and, and, and sometimes in ways that are not, you know, obviously to their benefit. So there's always that. A lot of times when we, I think, let's think of Man of Steel, the movie, for a minute. When Superman and Zod literally annihilate all of Metropolis. Now, how many people in reality probably died, all right, when that's yeah. during yeah. that battle? They whitewash, they don't show you anything. Um, I, I, I like the movie, but you know they, they clearly tried to minimize what actually would have happened in that circumstance. What I like about this, it's, it's, these are quiet stories essentially for the most part, is individual people, how these godlike beings affected my life and not necessarily for the best. It just reminds us always the collateral damage, you know, whether, whether, it's, whether, whether your intentions are good or not. It doesn't always mean people are going to walk away unscathed. Now there's a there's a thread of that in in Marvel comics around this time too because you get books like when did Tangled Web come out? Oh, good book, Bill. Really good. That book. That was an excellent book. That was also in the early two thousands. Yeah, so that the, was an excellent. You've book. got Tangled Web of Spider Man coming excellent. out around the same time. There was a short lived book called Muties that was just I dimly like, recall that yes. It was just teenagers who were experiencing their first mutant powers. Mm. And they were really out there powers, but it was a very down-to-earth book. Um, and so there was a lot of this, like, normal people encountering superpower uh, stuff going through Marvel at the time that I, I really quite liked. Well done, Billy. You? Well done, indeed. Now, so, so well-praised tonight. Well, you're making well, well, thank you. outstanding contributions. Now, issue 76 begins <laughs> Bendis and Malev's final arc, which is the Murdoch Papers. And issue 77, Matt reconciles with, with, with Mila. Now, I should mention to people, this is, this is just a basic checklist. There's a ton of stuff we're not addressing just in the question of time. We're touching upon all the key sort of beats, so to speak, of this era. But there's a lot of – this era is, again, a lot of people talking, a lot of, of, of characterization through conversation, through dialogue between key characters. So, again, if, if you just – I got to highly recommend these stories, but just so you're aware – a, a lot, there's a lot of, of detailed characterization going on in these issues through people conversing, essentially. No, I, have, I have a quick question because sure. it was shortly after the Kingpin, uh, Daredevil says, I'm Kingpin now. Was it in this book or was it in somewhere else where Daredevil, Matt Murdock basically meets with, I think, Mr. Fantastic, Doctor Strange, and Peter Parker to have a conversation about what he's doing? 
and like how it makes them look and stuff like that? That's probably referring to the Shadowlands story. Okay. Which we'll talk about in a moment. Okay. That conversation was just a very good conversation. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a moment. Now, the Murdoch papers, uh, the Kingpin has documents where, among other things, he's revealing Matt's identity. Because remember, the Kingpin knows Matt's identity from back from the classic Born Again story. And the Kingpin is trying to use these, these papers to get, him, to, to, to get himself out of prison. And we find out that Bullseye is also seeking the file for his own purposes. And issue 80, this all kind of culminates uh, – Great Electra and Black Widow cover, by the way, um, where Matt ends up in a battle with the Hand, Shield, other heroes – uh, over the papers, uh, Bendis brings in the Night Nurse character. Now, Night Nurse, go, this is another Bronze Age chestnut. Uh, Marvel, 1972-73, right in that area, wanted to try to bring in more female readers. So Stan Lee had the notion of let's have a series of titles that the main characters are women – and the books are – the creators, at least to some degree, are women. There are very few female creators, of course, in comics up to this point. And they created Shanna the She-Devil, Greer Nelson the Cat, the Claws of the Cat, who later becomes Tigra, and Night Nurse. And Night Nurse was meant to basically be a callback to like you know, soap operatic you know, adventures of a nurse in a hospital type of thing. And what was some of a romance comic feel to it as well? And Marvel just issued a seven ninety nine reprint. I have Which, that in my possession right yes. now. Actually, it included this story in <laughs> yes, it. Actually, where they they because there's Night Nurse ran for four issues, I think four or five issues tops. Couldn't have been very many. Yeah, <clears throat> and all those comics, Shanna, Cat, and Night Nurse, none of them lasted long. But it gets part of that wonderful. Again, one of the things I love about Marvel and the Bronze Age is all the experimentation. Sure. So, and as Bill mentioned, in the Night Nurse, uh, let's call it the very slim reprint comic they just reissued, they reprint her Bronze Age appearances and this issue 80, where she appear, where Brendis brings her back in the modern sense as this urban nurse who will offer her services to the superhero community when they're afraid to go to a hospital because they want to reveal their identities. And, importantly, the supervillain community as well. She will heal you. If you're a cop. That's right. Thanks for reminding me, Billy. Yeah. And uh, again, Doctor Strange, The Oath mm-hmm. by Brian K. Vaughn, which I cannot recommend enough. Um, I'm sure – in fact, I think – when you guys did your previews last week, didn't you mention how in the, the Halloween Fest, aren't they doing The Oath as their Marvel giveaway? Did you guys say that? Oh, maybe. Yes, we did. Yeah. Yeah. So clearly Marvel is getting ready for the Doctor Strange film. Yeah. Um, but The Oath is – Great. It's if you if you're interested in trying just trying a Doctor Strange story, just read the oath. And uh, they also emphasize Night Nurse there as this person has a role in the Marvel universe as this this sort of off the books healer, as Bill mentioned. In fact, again in the Netflix Daredevil series, uh, the magnificent. I just brain farted her name. I can't believe it. Oh, Rosario Dawson. The Magnificent right? What's-Her-Name. Yes, Rosario Dawson. Yeah. She is essentially a hybrid of Claire Temple, Luke Cage's girlfriend, and Night Nurse. She's fulfilling that same role, essentially. That's right out, right out of Bendis here. Now, at the end of issue 80, Matt gives himself up, and you know the jig is up, 
And in issue 81, he and the kingpin both end up in jail together. And that is how the Bendis and Malev era comes to a close. Now, if you gentlemen ever decide to give it a go, let me know. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it in, in greater detail uh, down the road. Now, issue 82, this I th- this was, was remarkable to me because I've been reading the same writer on Daredevil now f- from issue 16 with a brief break, a couple brief breaks, all the way through issue 81. So I, I, I love what Ben has done. The character, I think he's, he's furthered the, the, the feel of Daredevil as, as I've, I've enjoyed it. And now we bring in a new team. Now, I already knew Michael Lark's work from Gotham Central. And I proudly have an Electra sketch by Michael Lark in, our, in the Wild Pig store. Um, and right now I think he's doing the work of his life on Lazarus. I think he's one of the top pencilers in comics. I think he has been for quite some time. I knew Brubaker's work from Gotham Central as well. Now, if, if people aren't familiar with Gotham Central is the magnificent – Pre-Flashpoint DCU series, not re- not just focus so much on Batman, but on the detectives who make up the major crimes in, in Gotham City. Shane, you read this series, of no, course. I have not. I have it all, but I haven't read it. Now, if listeners could see, I, I have a look now. <laughs> of disdain. Like Shane just <laughs> went to my house. My wife just made this wonderful dinner, and he just dropped his pants and just defecated right in it. Because that's, that's how I'm looking right now. <laughs> You've never got the central no. you of all people. No. Shane, summer reading assignment. You will eat it up. Oh, I have so many summer reading assignments. Let's oh, prioritize them. It's terrible. Yeah, but, tell um, me about it, Shane. Oh. That's part of the joy. There's always something to read. <laughs> that's true. And, you know, hopefully 60 years from now, when, when you keel over, you, know, you breathe your last, they'll be like, an open comic on your lap on top of the blanket. Yeah, yeah, right. Essentially. Yeah. Now... Um, <laughs> It's a bit morbid. <laughs> but back to Daredevil, everyone. Super fun. I get, hey, I gave him at least 60 years. Come you on. did. Come I'll on. take it. I'll take 160. Magnificent. <laughs> That's sir. good. Let's do that. Yeah. No sense in, in ignoring mortality, Billy. It's there. Mm-hmm. Now. Uh, I can ignore it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like the Daredevil material is that much more cheerful anyways. So. That's true. Now, Brubaker, <laughs> had he re- was he writing Captain America yet at this point? I want to say that he wasn't. Well, I want to say he was. I have nothing to base on that. We can look it up. But <laughs> he was already a writer I, I was admiring. Bill's going right to the net. And they bring in these two Gotham Central alumnus. All right, They put them on Daredevil, which also has this crime theme. I was extremely excited. And I was very impressed with the seamless transition. I felt like – to me, I felt like it was, the teams had not really changed. I mean art-wise it changed, of course, because Malev and Lark have very different styles. But the tone and, – and Lark has a very noirish feel to his work, especially on this book. And everything just – it just clicked right into place, and I, I, I felt, ah, this is, this is so seamless. It's not jarring. I was, I was very happy. Now, they bring in Dakota North, who was a private eye. Inch high, uh, private eye. <laughs> oh, sorry. In, it the 1980s actually in Marvel. And the, she's doing investigative work for Nelson and Murdoch, and Matt is in prison, and they're trying to find a way to get him out. Someone is running around the city masquerading as Daredevil. Obviously, it's not Matt. And Foggy is beaten up in prison. We think he's dead. He's not. It seems that way. And then to make matters worse, over the next couple issues, Bullseye and the Punisher are also arrested. They end up in prison with Matt. And remember, the kingpin is already there. In issue 86, a prison riot breaks out, 
targeting Matt, Fisk, and Bullseye are now forced to band together to protect themselves. And the next issue, Castle, Frank Castle, the Punisher, helps Matt break out of prison. Uh, we, it, by the way, to backtrack, he was framed at this point for, for a crime. That's why he's there. We find later that, that it was Vanessa who actually framed Matt, and Vanessa is dying because she's, her, she's basically consumed with grief and guilt over murdering her son. So it's, it's, it's destroying her, essentially. And we find out Foggy's in witness protection. Then Matt goes on sort of an in- intrigue, espionage jaunt. Monte Carlo, Lisbon, Paris, trying to find out who was trying to kill Foggy. And again, one of Brubaker's great strengths is espionage. And, you know, you get that feel here in these stories, which is immensely fun. Um, in issue 93, Fisk agrees to leave the country and he gives up U.S. citizenship and he departs. Think of Becky Blake, who was Matt's, Matt and Foggy's secretary all the way back in the Miller era. She's now a lawyer in her own right. I'm sorry, Murd, go ahead. You're going to say something. Is she the young lady who was in a wheelchair? Yes, that's correct. All right. And she joins their firm. And Matt and Mila uh, move to a new apartment trying to sort of rebuild their barely fledgling life yeah. together, essentially. Now, 94, John Ramita's senior romance cover, baby. <laughs> Where, remember, Romita in the – before he returned to Marvel in the 60s was a D, one of DC's key romance pencilers for years in the 1950s. So that's a hallmark of his style. And this issue, which Lee Weeks, another classic Daredevil penciler, does the interiors, uh, it's basically Mila reflecting on being married to a superhero and, you know, the consequences of that. Now, jumping ahead a little bit. Actually, before you do, I've got please. I've got the information. So yes, uh, Brew Baker started his Daredevil run yes. in April two thousand and six. Do we have? Does anybody want to take a guess? As when as Captain to, America started? as to when he started on Captain America, uh, well, I've, I've already found the same information after. you have. Oh so. well, then you're spoiled. I'm, okay, yeah, I'm uh, yes, is it before or after? Yes, he was. I, I say it's before Daredevil two thousand five. Yes, yeah, Ooh. he had been writing Captain America since January two thousand five, over a year. So you already done the Winter uh, Soldier then? Yes, before uh, before he he was conscripted to write Daredevil. Billy, thank you. Trencherman service, yeah. thank you. Now, hmm. conscripted, you say? I don't know. I just used the word. Okay, <laughs> I'm assuming he was tapped. Or, or well, considering it happens. well, I don't know. Conscription kind of carries the connotation of compulsion. Like he was he was shanghaied into writing Daredevil. Uh, that could have happened too. <laughs> Maybe that's how they get these authors, is they just, like, set traps under bars. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm such a, like, there's the bear claw. <laughs> if I wanted to trap an author, if I wanted to trap a writer, yeah, I would probably put it in a bar. <laughs> so in a nice pale ale, next thing you know, you got a manacle around your neck and you're being forced to write the man without happened. fear. All of a sudden, I was halfway across the country in an office with a script. <laughs> Be that as it may. The man wrote Gotham Central and Captain America, so I, I'm thinking back to myself at that time. I'm, I'm sure I was very excited that he was now writing Daredevil, essentially. And, and to this day, Brubaker is one of those writers, so the minute I see his name on a book, I pick it up immediately. I don't care what it is, the company, the subject, and I read it. I know. We get, we get tons of copies on the shelf. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know what's happened. There's like 15 million copies of The Fade Out, number one. Damn good book, Billy. Damn good. <laughs> now, issue 99... Mila accidentally kills a man. She's in trouble now. This brings us into the high point of the Brubaker 
uh, Lark Run, which is which is called Without Fear. It's just 100 to 105, which reintroduces Larry Cranston, who was the second Mr. Fear. Correct, Mert? Uh, if you don't count Star Saxon. Oh, right. Star Saxon yeah. who's the third Mr. Fear. Yeah. yeah. Like okay. Saxon took over the costume very briefly and died wearing it, and then, then it went to Cranston. Okay. And Larry Cranston was, if I remember correctly, a lawyer That's in right. that San Francisco law lawyer. firm in the Bronze a Age. Uh, he was a classmate of uh, Matt yes. Murdock's. And kind the, of a rivalry. There was his. a rivalry there. And refresh your memory. Refresh your memory. Why does he become Mr. Fear initially? Uh, well, because uh, he's fig- he figures out because Matt Murdock and Daredevil relocate to San Francisco at about the same time that they're one and the same. And those old buried resentments against Murdock uh, resurface. And so uh, he uh, seizes the opportunity he has to uh, confiscate uh, the Mr. Fear equipment, and uh, he uses it. And we think he dies. Right. Yeah. But he returns. And then the Mr. Fear costume, is it a purple cow or blue? It is purple. And the mask is blue. Yes, the mask okay. is like a blue skull, and like yes. the, most of the costume is blue, too. But yes. the, you're, you're right, the keeping cow are okay. purple. And he is using, is it a toxin, a gas? I'm trying to remember what he... Yeah, okay. it, it is a fear gas. Yeah. And he manipulates Mila... To turn against Matt, she goes off the deep end, cause, and we find out that the fear toxin has no cure. So let's, now let's, let's go back and look at the scorecard of Matt Murdock's romantic life. So Electra, who is his first great love and lust, she is already possessed by the hand when she was in college already as Miller retconned. So she's bat poop crazy. So that does not end well. She dies in his arms after Bullseye kills her. Heather Glenn, who was his girlfriend in, in the Miller era, she has a drinking issue. She eventually will commit suicide. Um, the Black Widow, his great lover of the, the Bronze Age, she's probably the most stable, and that's saying something of all the people Matt was involved in. Uh, you know, they, they go their separate ways, although they still remain, maintain close ties. Karen, of course, will sell him out for a heroin fix to. The Kingpin in Born Again to reveal his identity. Then they'll, they'll come back together. Season two. Yes. <laughs> Born, Again, Born Again will be season three. That's my guess. Oh, okay. Um, and she, uh, they reconcile. But then, of course, she's murdered by a bullseye. She takes a bully club in the chest for Matt. Um, Mila ends up institutionalized, com- already rendered essentially insane by Mr. Fear's toxin. And <clears throat> so... Mattis had has a long list. Whether it's not always his, his fault necessarily, it's not because he wants it that way, but as one of the great issues he grapples with in these the, the Bendis Brubaker era is, what is Daredevil doing to the people in my life? And Mila is the latest tragic example. What can century. I just love? <laughs> now, issue one eleven begins the Lady Bullseye arc. Now, this interesting character, Lady Bullseye, was a child sex slave of the yakuza in Japan. And she witnessed Bullseye on a, on a separate agenda killing Yakuza members. So she's able to escape, and she's so in awe of how easily Bullseye dispatches these men. She decides to dedicate her life to the art of the assassin and to emulate him. And she dons a costume which sort of turns her body into a version of Bullseye's costume. She's actually a lawyer by day. <laughs> 
And Who isn't? <laughs> I'm a lawyer by day. And she is a servitor of the hand, essentially. And it seems like she's after Daredevil. And issue 114, Matt has a drunken tryst with Dakota North. So she's drawn to Matt as well. And Lady Bullseye in her lawyer persona – this sounds silly, but it's actually great because it's Brubaker – she it, it doesn't help that in my head I hear Bender going, single female lawyer! <laughs> <laughs> <having> lots of sex. <laughs> I, got, I got to hold on here. No. <laughs> Sorry. And, um, it's tremendous. And Lady Bullseye in her lawyer persona reveals to Mila's parents, who are in a custody battle with Matt over because Mila's incapacitating the institution, um, and she shows photos of Matt having sex with Dakota North. And Matt loses his custody battle. And at this time, he's at a low ebb again. And also the hand kill both the white tiger, the female white tiger, and then the black tarantula, who was another Latino uh, hero. Wow. Who I first remember seeing in the Spider-Girl comic by um, Tom DeFalco. Not not a fan of – not a Merv fan. Yeah. Uh, He he was created by Tom DeFalco. Yes. uh, They bring him into this noirish – Marvel continuity, and uh, remember that when the hand kills someone, the hand can then resurrect that person, and they're then in the thrall of the hand, essentially. We find in issue 115 that the hand actually wants Daredevil to lead them. He's been such an indomitable opponent, they want him to take control of their sect. So they're trying to recruit him while he's still alive. Yes, they want That's to take, a really big step. want to take control of the hand. Now, issue 116, this I think is one of Brubaker's strongest issues in the series. It's called Return of the King. This is a powerful issue because it's all about Wilson Fisk. He's kept his promise to Matt. He's left the country. He's living in exile in Spain. He's taken up with a woman who he seems to be in love with. Um, He's helping her raise her two children. And you see a Wilson Fisk you've never really seen before. Domesticated. Caring. Devoted. Vanessa, you assume, is dead. And it's like he's trying to turn over a whole new leaf. Then Lady Bullseye and the Hand appear. They murder this woman and her children, kill them all. And the idea is to drag the kingpin back. Sure. And uh, this is a tremendous issue. It's another example of what a great writer Ed Brubaker is in in taking a situation where you really feel for a, a fallen character who seems to be on the path to redemption, and then in the most brutal fashion possible. But it, but it's so compelling, he drags him back into the darkness. Now, the next three issues of the Return of the King storyline, where Fisk and Daredevil take allied together to defeat the Hand. Now, all right, Shane, get ready. We're now going to jump back to Volume 1. They changed the numbering. <laughs> because Issue 120 apparently would have been the 500th issue of Daredevil. And why not celebrate that? I mean, yes. <sighs> I hate I hate the renumbering, the mm. constant renumbering. I, think I don't mind happens. the renumbering if it would be presented in with every volume. It can start at number one, fine, but just in the bottom corner, have what the actual number is, and don't it, go back and forth. That's been don't, done sometimes. It, it has. Yeah, they did yeah, try that at first. They do. It and happens quite a lot with Fantastic Four. Yes, it does. <laughs> What I find funny about it is, and I, I don't know, I, I mean, I don't have access to the information, but if you, if you had access to the sales figures, how much 
of effect does it really right. have? It must have some short-term effect because they keep doing it. Oh, sure. Absolutely. It. So it must, yeah. at least in a, in a short-term sense. Right, and, and, like and I think anyway, you don't hear as much great jumping on point as yeah. new number one great jumping on point. Oh, number one. All right. Well, that's mm. good. I, so I do think it has an impact. They're appealing a bit to the collector mentality and also a oh, bit sure. to the uh, you know, new reader jumping on factor that yeah. they keep Makes, yeah. trying to I push. Guess it, makes seems like, it seems like it would be antithetical to the new reader jumping on point where you go, we're going to celebrate 500 issues of something you haven't read. Yeah, what's interesting, oh, what's yeah. interesting, <laughs> I was talking about the constant uh, number, the oh, number one. I, I, Maybe I'm going to be on the on the the opposite side of most people, but I don't mind the number ones. I don't mind number ones, especially if you're if you're going to start a new volume, or especially if you're going to have a new creative team. Um, I, I think actually that's probably how they should do it: is just let the creative teams have these arcs oh, and right. and do the number one. And like if. If, you know, like they had Charles Soleil on She-Hulk and they did 12 issues of that and then book is over. And then if he comes back to it, just do another number one. And Going and with more like a season mentality. Exactly. Well, they seem to be moving in fits and starts more towards that, Billy. They do, yeah. especially with uh, all new Marvel now. Sure. They, yeah. they seem to be enjoying that, but they'll still go back to this. Especially, well, if there's like, an anniversary issue, of course. I think are. the last one was... Deadpool uh, had 250th uh, uh, book uh, or something like that. I think Uncanny X-Men they had, they had that too. 500 yeah. recently, 500, right? Yeah. yeah. Remember Deadpool team up, they uh, jumped straight to number 1,000 and just counted <laughs> backwards for a few months. <laughs> what I find interesting, though, if, from an historical perspective, and we've talked about this before, in the Golden Age, think back, Murd, to when they – brought the Flash back. They didn't start it at number one, right? They went back to the Golden Age Flash numbering. Yeah, Flash comics. Yeah, because the... they felt that the mentality then was, this This is in the 1950s, that people would feel more reassured to buy a book that seemed to have this history behind right, it right. than take a, a sort of a cold bet on a new book. So, And if the readers didn't, the newsstand uh, managers would. Exactly. Because, so, hey, look, this thing's been around for 105 issues. Somebody must be buying it. I'll exactly. take a chance so, on it. Yeah. When, yeah. you know, Baryon moves from showcase to his own book, it's, it's 105, right? Isn't that the first issue? I think so. Yeah. Um, so, And you, you saw that oftentimes in that era. I think that just like shows that. a change in mentality yeah, exactly. about how, no, we, exactly. how we read these things because you have now more – more people who are more connected to, I think, the, the creative process and who are more likely to follow a particular writer around than, Good point, than go, say, this Flash character has been around for 600 <laughs> issues. He's got legs. You know, like... <laughs> He's not going anywhere, Johnny. Let's take him. <laughs> I love the 1940s ticker tape reading. Thank you. It's magnificent. Go ahead. Barry Allen fights the slowest man alive. <laughs> All righty. So back to our issue 500 for Daredevil. Um, so we're back to the volume one number, which they're going to continue with for a little bit here. Matt is now fully in control of the hand. And his, his, his goal, and you know it's not going to work out, is to try to keep the, the hand sort of on the straight and narrow. Now remember, this is a, basically a mystical ninja death cult that has been murdering people for God knows how many centuries. This is probably not going to work out I feel like well. he can turn it around. <laughs> Now, sunshine day. <laughs> Guys, let's, let's sing. Let's get in a circle. We'll sing. 
Hold hands. Come on, everyone, hold hands. Issue. No, no, Shang, no murdering. <laughs> Don't make me get the spray bottle. <laughs> As Panther said, we're getting loosey-goosey here, gentlemen. We are. Yeah, we are. Now, issue 501 begins the Andy Diggle, Roberto De La Torre run on Daredevil. Now, I'm a big Andy Diggle fan. He wrote The Losers, which is a book I love. He did uh, Green Arrow Year One, which I'm sure some of us have read. Not yet. Had a pretty um, good run on Swamp Thing, as yeah, I recall. He did, yeah, and he's, he's doing wonderful work now on Thief of Thieves, uh, one of Robert Kirkman's titles. Strong writer. Um, a writer I've always enjoyed. Losers was yeah. outstanding. I think he wrote the Adam Strange Planet Heist story. That rings a bell. Oh, I think, I I think he did. Yes. Part of the yeah. run-up to Infinite Crisis. So, fabulous story. Yeah, so th- this is no slouch in the writing department. Now, as a reader, I thought these issues were terribly flat. I thought that the wonderful uh, seamless translation in tone from Bendis and Malev to Brubaker and Lark was completely lost at this point. Now, to be fair, I don't know how much of this is Diggle and how much of this is editorial uh, meddling, especially as Shadowland uh, is approaching. But I started to feel like I was back in the 90s, which is not a good place to be for Daredevil. Mm. Um, well, now, speaking of the 90s, yeah. uh, I see the word snake root mentioned here in yes. your notes. Um, uh, is is that something that Miller came up with? Because no. it, it, yeah, it, it was uh, a central concept of the fall from Greece. Yes, storyline. that's where that first appears. Just wasn't sure if uh, D.G. No. Uh, Chichester borrowed that from Miller or if it was his own idea. My understanding, based on my memory of what I've read, is that Chichester alone did Snake Root. All right, and here's Andy Diggle picking that up out of the ash heap of history. And so Matt goes to – Matt is now the 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 – the daimyo, the lord of the hand, and he goes to convince the, the hand's five factions, their warlords, to unite under his, his control, and the white tiger is joining him now. She's also a servant of the hand, but she's actually being possessed by the snake root faction who – and we, we find out later that Matt is being possessed by the beast who has been referred to since the, the hand first appeared, who is essentially this, like this mystical demonic entity the hand worships essentially, and – I don't have much to say about this era. I think it's I think it's very weak. My my own reading preference. Um, a couple of highlights: five hundred five and five hundred six have beautiful c- covers by Paolo Rivera. Oh, well, yeah. One of them is like in the f- the style of a Japanese woodblock print, where Daredevil is kind of vaulting over a snowy uh, bridge with ninjas in pursuit. It's breathtaking. It's one of my first memories of Paolo Rivera art. I was blown away by. We're going to return to him shortly, actually, in, in this discussion. Now, 508 to 512 is the Shadowland arc. Now, CGS did a whole series of episodes. I completely skipped it. Yes. It sounded like a train wreck. Yes, where I I think it was Pants, Deemer, and maybe Peter discussed the Shadowland stories. There was even Shadowland theme music. Uh, I think Kevin was involved in some of these as well. I hope so. The long and short of Shadowland is, and there were crossovers with other Marvel titles and characters, is that Matt builds a... Feudal Japanese-style stronghold in Manhattan, in Hell's Kitchen, on the spot where, in in these earlier issues of the Diggle Run, an apartment building which was holding out against an Oscorp expanding this Norman Osborn, his hammer and all that stuff is going on. Bullseye blows up the building, killing everyone inside in service of Osborn. Matt is so enraged this happened, you know, in his territory, that he builds the Hand Citadel on the spot of this apartment building, and the Hand now basically control. Hell's Kitchen, and it's called Shadowland. 
Matt now wears a black Daredevil suit with like the red logo on the chest. And his behavior is becoming more and more erratic and violent. And his, his, his tactics are becoming more questionable. Now, Bill, I think you're thinking of that discussion where his different heroes are concerned about the way he's, he's behaving. Essentially, I, I thought that this was this was specifically after the kingpin stuff, and I, I remember it being Maliv art. So I, I don't. I could be wrong then. Certainly. Yeah, I think this was because this was this was like I think it was Doctor Strange and Peter Parker and somebody else. I think it was Mister Fantastic, and they're going, "Look, you can't just become a crime lord." And, well, and okay, no. What you're referring to, then you're right. What you're referring to is when Matt makes declares himself the kingpin. Yes, which is earlier. And on. he yes. goes, and he goes, uh, and they're like, "You're just, you're just pushing all the crime out of Hell's Kitchen and into all of our backyards." And and he goes, uh, "You should uh, claim your own spots too. That's just, right. just plant your flag and be like, I'm in charge here now. We'll become warlords. It'll be great." <laughs> um. Sign here at the dot line. Yeah, <laughs> this will totally work, guys, and nobody buys it. And Shadowland, whereas, see, that kind of conversation shows how a writer, uh, for me, at the skill level of Venice would handle that so well. Here is a different story. And again, <laughs> I, I, I think Annie Diggle's an outstanding writer. I, I, I don't, I would never assume to blame him for this. I, I, it, it screams editorial, it's a big crossover event. And Matt ends up in conflict with. Bullseye, Osborne, he actually kills Bullseye. I remember Brian Deemer going, finally, he just killed me. He should have done that, I don't know how many years ago. He killed two of your girlfriends. Just kill him. I remember that was Deemer's take on uh, dealing with Bullseye. And Matt runs him through. Now, you know damn well Bullseye's not really dead. It yeah. looks like he's dead. And basically, heroes have to storm Shadowland because Matt's just off the deep end. Now, I remember at the time, I'm suffering through this thinking, okay, at the very least, redeem this by saying he's not controlled by some supernatural entity. He's just made really bad decisions. He's gone off the deep end because his life's been through the ringer now for the past, I don't know how many years of continuity. The guy just cracked. All right? To go with that, not with, well, he was possessed. <laughs> and they choose the latter. According to work for Hal Jordan. Yeah. So, and frankly, I was fine with that because I thought Shadowland was so poorly executed if it had been done better, it, they could have made it a very interesting story about the total deconstruction of a character who has completely lost his way in trying to do what he thinks is right, yeah. which is a classic theme of the hero, the journey of the sure. hero and so forth. It's, exact, nope. it's actually it, very, very uh, – not to spoil it, but it's very Arrow season three. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'll agree with that. And now yeah. – but here it's – nope, it was a demon. So Iron Fist hits Matt with his chi punch <laughs> and – the demon is exercised. That's how it works. <laughs> the beast with capital B is gone. They should have just done that from the beginning. Is there any problem that punching can't solve? Yeah. Mm, I doubt Hey, remember when is. DC did that thing with Parallax? We're going to try that with Daredevil. <laughs> did uh, Iron Fist punch Parallax out of yeah. Al Gordon? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Is that how it worked? That's how it worked. He had a ring on. <laughs> now, Matt then goes to New Mexico in the miniseries Daredevil Reborn 1 through 4. The Daredevil comic, they keep the 500 number le- numbering, but it becomes, I was thrilled, Black Panther. Uh, Francesco Francavilla doing magnificent artwork on that. And, and oh, he's I, great. Oh, the writer, last name starts with an L. Lit- mm-hmm. That was really helpful, I know. <laughs> Liss? I'm 
Well, there is such a person as an Andrew Liss. I, I don't know if that's who actually would have to look it up. Series, but though. Um, they yeah, do we'll, a commendable we'll job out. on Black Panther being the protector of Hell's Kitchen in Daredevil's book for a period of time. Sure. Daredevil goes off in this miniseries to find himself. He ends up in New Mexico. He breaks up some drug ring, uh, corrupt police, and he kind of finds his way back to himself. Go ahead. David Liss. David Liss. Thank you very much. He did the Black Panther Man Without, Man Without Fear, Fear series right. with Frank Avia. Now, if you're a Daredevil fan and you're reading at this point, you may be a little deflated because – and people will talk on the forums. Personally, I thought Shadowland was, was garbage. I thought it was a poorly conceived, poorly executed – uh, crossover event with with a real cop out ending, uh, like so many of them. When you think about yeah. it, I know Shane, you're a, a big veteran of that. Yes, I am. Um, but then Marvel did something very wise. They said, "Mr. Wade, here's Daredevil. Have at it. Yeah, go. And we're gonna we're gonna in our our the last stages of our discussion here. I'm gonna talk about." Volumes three and then four, which is currently running, of the Daredevil character. For me, volume three, issues one through 36 by Mark Wade with penciling by Paolo Rivera. A lot of magnificent covers by Marcos Martin, which are gorgeous. Mm -hmm. And also a lot of Chris Samney penciling later on, Javier Rodriguez as well. And then volume four, again written by Wade and featuring some of the same pencilers, Samney, for example. To me... Without fail, from issue to issue, these are some of the most perfect – when it comes to all the ingredients of Daredevil, these stories to me are the perfect synthesis. I have, Every time an issue comes out of, of, of volumes three and four of Daredevil, it's one of the first books I read without, without hesitation. I have a big shit-eating grin on my face <laughs> every time I see Daredevil having co- is coming out that week, and once again – Mark Wade, pound for pound, dollar for dollar, one of the most consistently great writers <coughs> in the comic book medium today. Um, Murd loves the swashbuckling Daredevil. It's in these titles. Yeah, I love the, I love the swashbuckling too. But I also love the the crime noirish, edgier, fractured psyche elements of Daredevil's history. It's also there. Uh, the colorful villains. He even brings back Stuntmaster. Okay, <laughs> right? Isn't that his name? Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, Instead of an evil Knievel yes, clone. Yes, yeah. It's all there. I mean... Some sort of evil Knievel? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Billy. He even comes up with something cool and downright scary to do with the spot. The spot is... Jester brings in Claw, Mole Man, Doctor Doom, uh, Black Spectre, the subversive organization. Yeah, that's digging deep. Uh, it, yeah, find interpretation deep. of the owl. Yes, the owl, the Marvel monsters, all of these the characters. Shroud. Shroud. Who plays a pretty major character in the in, the, in these volumes, um, and the, the, the long again these issues a lot of them are in trade already. Oh yeah, the first volume is all in trade. The whole volume, uh, volume three, I mean, excuse mm-hmm. me, and volume four is still running. I believe it's ending. I want to say in November, certainly before the year is out. I want to say eighteen. I put a question mark in the notes. I think is the last issue. Not positive though. Um, it's Wade writing the whole book. It's Mark Wade. Yeah. It's his vision of for, Daredevil. For me, in those first, in those early issues of Volume Three, there was that one splash page where Matt's crossing a street, oh yes, and picking out everything that could potentially yes. happen well done, to know Shane. everything around him. It's a fabulous page. Yes, well done. Somebody at the pants probably pointed that out, and I went, oh, ooh, that looks interesting. This is 
these volumes, again, it's a combination of the swashbuckling, the wit, the fun mm-hmm. of the Silver Age and, you know, aspects of the Bronze Age. The wacky villains and, you know, the, the boyish and, humor. And, and wacky you know, villains, though, that makes sense for what stories they're yes, telling. Absolutely. They're not just wacky to be wacky. Yeah. Absolutely. And they combine that with, like, the, the noirish, edgy legacy of Miller, Bendis, and Brubaker. Yeah. I mean, oh, yes. Matt talks about Mila in these stories. Like, she's not gone. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're forever apart. You know, basically, his, his, his life as Daredevil ruined her life and drove her insane through the, the Mr. Fear experience. Um, but, and fa- and, but the, Matt is trying to move forward with his life. He's trying to walk forward with his demons. They're there. But he's just trying to move forward with them, essentially. And for me, any Daredevil fan, these these two volumes, three and four, are mandatory reading. Mandatory reading. Um, Matt and Foggy reestablish themselves as lawyers, but they're so tainted because of all the publicity. They're, they're reduced to telling their clients how to defend themselves because if they go into court themselves, yeah. they'll be too much of a distraction, mm-hmm. essentially. Um, it becomes a superhero circus, almost. Yeah, exactly. We're introduced to a, a wonderful new Daredevil supporting character, Kirsten McDuffie, who is sort of a lawyer rival to Matt, who eventually becomes his, his latest, and in some ways, I think, most well-adjusted romantic relationship. Um, uh, she's dead. Not yet. Uh, soon. <laughs> soon enough. I, you know what? I the really, clock is ticking. It I, probably won't be Mark Wade that does it. Yeah, I, you're, I, you're right. Somebody I, probably yes. will. They can't come up with anything it's, better it's to do. Sa- it's sad that I can make that joke, and it's almost not a joke. Yeah. Um, yeah. I really, Bill, I'm well, glad you mentioned stuffed that. into a refrigerator sooner or later. <laughs> yes. I really clock hope. Clock is ticking. Now, whatever happens to Daredevil in the post-Secret Wars mishmash, uh, we'll see. But I really hope they do not kill her because... The deaths of, of, of Electra and, and Karen, more Electra to me than Karen Page, but mm. had great power to them. If you keep doing that, obviously it becomes a joke, mm-hmm. essentially. So hopefully they won't fall prey to the girl in the refrigerator trope, as you mentioned. Well, and I think since the girl in the refrigerator from Kyle Rayner's days, um, I think most killings like this that happen over and over are a joke in the comics. Or yeah. e- when they do happen, they're quickly spotted and and yeah. I think largely... Uh, galled by the comic reading population. Yeah. Now, this volume culminates, and th- these are all taking place in Manhattan. Matt is, is in Manhattan. He's trying to maintain his life there and trying to be more positive and optimistic. Um, it culminates issue 36, which is the last issue of volume 3, where Matt decides once and for all he's going to formally reveal his daredevil identity, not have it imposed upon him. He's going to choose to do it for for his own sake and... Uh, for Foggy. Now, we also find on these last issues in Volume 3, Foggy has cancer. These issues are very well done in terms mm-hmm. of addressing the fact that really the most constant presence in Matt Murdock's entire life, because his father's dead, his mother abandoned him, she's, the, she's a nun, most of his lovers are dead or gone or in an institution, it's Foggy. Foggy is the constant. Foggy may die. And Matt says, okay, it's, we, we, have to, we have to change our lives. We ha- I have to think about Foggy. And a very clever scheme he cooks up with Foggy and Kirsten McDuffie where – I wonder if she's named after Dwayne McDuffie. I wondered that. Right? Am I thinking the right person here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the creator who passed away yeah. who was a wonderful writer. No. Um, he decides he's going to admit publicly I'm Daredevil. He's going to become disbarred uh, because 
he was obviously breaking the law. And he and Foggy fake a battle where Foggy, quote, dies heroically in battle with Leapfrog. Now, I'm assuming that this is, this is way – this is probably the original Leapfrog is my guess, Murd. I don't have the issue in front of me, but that's going to be my guess. I, I really can't help you out there. And it might be even Wade who uh, finally told us who that second Leapfrog with the autistic son was. Perhaps. And Matt – Kirsten says, look, you can go back to San Francisco because back, uh, full circle to the Bronze Age. Daredevil – when it was Daredevil and the Black Widow, when it was the two of them together sharing the title mask, they were in San Francisco. And Matt says, Kirsten, look, you can still be a lawyer in San Francisco because you, you practice there, and you, it's not New York law. And Kirsten basically dares Matt to leave New York, and he says, all right, especially for Foggy. People think Foggy is dead. He isn't, so he can, he's not protected because the whole world now knows without question Matt is Daredevil, and he's openly acting as Daredevil. And they move to San Francisco where Matt can practice law. He and Kirsten become law partners. And they, they're romantically involved, and seemingly in a way that for Matt seems to be healthy. And then Volume 4, which is still running, they've begun their law practice. Um, and Matt – the fun twist here, the overarching th- twist is, is that Matt is being paid an enormous advance sum to write his autobiography because the world knows he's Daredevil. He's admitted he's Daredevil. And the question now is, well, let's capitalize on this, and a publisher wants him to write his life story. He says, all right. And basically, Wade has a lot of fun now with Matt reminiscing about his life, and he's having Foggy ghostwrite the book because Foggy was there for the whole thing, and Matt doesn't really necessarily have the discipline to sit down and write the book. So he says, Foggy, you write it. And he's being, he's been paid, they're being paid a fortune for it. And that, that's an ongoing subplot in, in the current volume. And Matt is now so confident in his new life that he actually is no longer even wearing the Daredevil costume at this point. And right now he's wearing sort of a red like devil suit as in a, a jacket and tie and vest and it, it's it's it, it's goofy but it's it works in a fun way um and one book i wanted to focus on as we if we finish out our checklist of the comics here because volume four is still running right now in fact not to spoil it, the last issue which i just read brings back wilson fisk in a big way no pun intended in a way that potentially has very deadly consequences so we'll have to see what happens there Issue 1.50 in this series, I mention this for two reasons. One, from a personal, uh, sentimental standpoint, the last time I did a recording with Jamie D, which this recording was not aired because he was very ill, but he insisted on going on the air. It was just me and him. We've it was re- around Easter time, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, we reviewed Daredevil 1.5, essentially. So it had a special meaning for me, but the, the size of the issue is also great. They look at a Daredevil's entire history, and they, they have a, a new story kind of capturing each era. There's a great story when, when he's the Mike Burdock character, <laughs> pretending to be his twin brother to try to <laughs> fool people. It's, it's a great jazzy story about you know the Mike Murdock Daredevil of the 60s. And they do a story, which Ray, Wade writes, where it's Daredevil's 50th birthday. It's, it's magnificent, and it's sort of like, well, this is where Matt Murdock might be, and he's there with Foggy. And he has a child when he's 50 years old. It's, it's wonderful. I remember Jamie and I discussing it. Um, but I, I think as you look at this whole era of Daredevil in the 2000s, for me, with the exception of the, that brief Shadowland period, this is a consistently great era in the character's history. 
an era that capitalized on all the wonderful facets of his past, the swashbuckling, the humor, the colorful villains, the crime noir, the, the psychological drama. You know, between Bendis, Brubaker, and then Wade, you get it all, essentially. And I think Wade, in many ways, is sort of the perfect synthesis uh, of all of that. And I think as we enter this post-Secret Wars era, uh, we'll see what happens with Daredevil. But right now, through the next few months... If you're a Daredevil fan, you should be extremely happy because I think the book has been just in such wonderful hands now for so many years. Yeah. Before we get into the last bit on multimedia, what are people's sort of closing thoughts on just – we've done all these spotlights on the whole run of the character's comic. What are people's closing thoughts on the Daredevil comic, the character, your, your view, etc.? Very much like Fantastic Four, it has some very large ups and downs for the things that I have read of it. Um, I did recently buy the first volume of the Frank Miller, um, Klaus Jensen yes. volumes, volume one. And I want to sink my teeth into that a little bit. And that's partially because of what we talked about on the spotlights. And I never read it. I like Miller. Um, I didn't like him at first when I picked up Dark Knight Returns. I thought, oh, my God, what is this? Uh, but I grew to really like it. And, and there's a lot that I like that Miller does. And, and I want to see how his Daredevil story strikes me. I look forward to your reaction. Yeah, Billy? Uh, I classically haven't read a lot of Daredevil. I've read Born Again. I've read you know a lot, a bit of the old uh, Frank Miller stuff. I'm looking forward to reading the entirety of the Wade Run. I've only read a little bit of it, the Mole Man story. Ah, uh, yes, which I, I liked quite a lot. Um, just because I'm trying to catch up with with all of the A N M N um, stuff that's coming out now. So, but. Uh, I like where the character is going. I like where the character is going in the media uh, uh, yes. right now. We'll talk about that in a moment. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, that, that's really all I have to say. Brother Murdo? Seems to me that perhaps no other character in the history of superhero comics has suffered quite as much as Point hmm. Matt Murdock. <laughs> Good point. Taken in sum, the whole 50-year, half-century history of Daredevil has just been a series of him getting knocked down over and over again in more and more painful ways and always finding new ways to get back up on his feet. Does that that is the Murdoch legacy there. They they know how to take a beat. Well, Matt uh, Matt Murdy hit the nail right in the head because the idea of, of I go back to Born Again where he just says, you know, never give up. Never surrender. And Fight you know, Murdoch. And <laughs> Galaxy Quest. You're right, this is a character who perseveres and when you think about it, up until recently I'm interested to know what you guys think. I think Daredevil was the comic book character that was like the best kept secret in superhero comics because among you know well-read fans and readers, Daredevil is, is a revered title. But in the outside world, he was he was not really well known compared to the other Marvel characters. Now I think that's changing now because of obvious multimedia efforts. Yeah. But I I mean up until recently. For me, Daredevil was, was one of my all-time favorite books, but outside of you know comic readers, you really couldn't talk about him with people because they didn't really know much. I think you have a lot him. of lay people who who largely judge superheroes by their power set, yeah, and and not necessarily by their by their arc or the writers mm. who write them or or anything like that. And Daredevil is just not going to shine for them because. His power set is so... It's not even a bad power set. It's just... It's subtle. Well put, Billy. It's more and, powers and than Batman has, it's though. It's way more powers than Batman has. Um, 
But Batman Nobody has sort of, more powers than Batman. Yeah. <laughs> Batman emulates those powers by just being cleverer than anyone could possibly be ever. That's right. Um, well, Matt Murdock is a pretty <laughs> clever guy himself. He's sure very is. clever, yeah. No, and he uses those powers in an amazing way. And in fact, in that Wade book that I was talking about, you know, you sort of see the breadth of his powers where he, they're like walking through a subway tunnel and there's a guy playing violin for, for money and he, he goes... Excuse me, can I borrow that? And you get this idea that Matt Murdock's never played the violin at all, ever. And he starts playing, and you can see in the musical notes it's all cracked and horrible, and by the end of the page he's playing beautifully. He just tuned himself to the music using his extraordinary abilities. And Well uh, done, Billy. Well done. It's, it's just... I do like when these subtle power sets get taken as far as they can go. Well... I'm sorry, Mary, go ahead. I was just going to agree and say that Wade has always been very good at uh, finding you know, new wrinkles and new directions for yeah. long-established characters and, and their powers. And to add to that, just I think the subtle is the perfect word to describe Matt Murdock's power so compared to other more flashier heroes. But also, I, I, I take gratification that I think more and more people are realizing how compelling the world of Daredevil is and how compelling Matt Murdock is as a character which I think makes him one of the most captivating of, of all the Marvel, for, for me, all the Marvel characters since I was a kid. I mean, like I said, my, my, when my, my first two exposures to Daredevil were Daredevil 181, The Death of Elektra, his first appearance in Son of Origins and the classic colon Brother Take My Hand that Kevin and I waxed rhapsodic about in a previous episode, and then Born Again. I started reading Daredevil Monthly with Born Again. So for me, that character is, has such a special place and such a, a powerful place in, in my history as a lover of the medium. And again, Bill, when we discuss Born Again, not just in the future, I hope you could join us for that uh, uh, sure. as well. I know we did that as a, as a, a book club book uh, with the Wild well, Pig we're gonna, book club, We're going to uh, go into it in, in great detail here. Oh, boy. So Now we're going to wrap up with a discussion of other media. <laughs> now in 2003, <laughs> I had one of the bigger pop cultural disappointments of my life. <laughs> I was so excited at the prospect of a Daredevil movie. I loved the character, as we all know. I, I was been investing the character since I was, you know, about twelve, even younger than that, really. When, when scattershot issues, and I was hopeful, especially since the quality of the Raimi Spider-Man films. Yeah, because I think the first one had come out for sure. I don't know. I don't think the second one had. No, not the second one yet, but the first one had because it was two, Daredevil came out in two thousand three. So this movie comes out. I like Ben Affleck. I, I don't. Some people vis have a visceral dislike for him. Um, I think he's a solid actor. I think he's also a pretty talented director. I had no problem with him in the role. So we're into this movie with cautiously optimistic expectations. I left with my symbolic head in my hand, <laughs> so deflated. And in fact, I went in with a close friend of mine, my, my good friend Jenny, who I turned on to reading Daredevil, a, a, a colleague of mine. And she, 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 she'd read all these great Daredevil stories. And she left the movie. She, she actually was physically pained. <laughs> and she's like, she's like, wow, like, really? So to be fair, there's also the director's cut. Far superior. Which many people – it's still not good enough in my view. But, oh, no, but I, I like Many people have talked about it. So let's, let's get a, yeah. just, just a general consent because I, I th- the movie came out before Sieges was on the air. Mm-hmm. So there was never a, a formal review, I think, of the film. Nope. Um, 
let's just let's start. We'll start with Bill. What'd you think of the movie? Oh, stinker! It's <laughs> terrible. It's terrible uh, in the original. It's terrible in the director's cut. I'm sorry <laughs> to say. Uh, the soundtrack is just just awful. Just generic rock of the time. Um, but there were some tremendously stupid scenes. I don't know why he always like took his glasses off to uh, so he could see quote unquote. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he always took the glasses off when he was trying to use his like echolocation power. I'm like, I guess he's hearing things with his eyes or something. Um, yeah, and I, you know what? I, I don't even know what to blame it on except for I, it was the writing and the direction. I don't think it was any one actor. No, I agree. With no, you. I don't. I, agree um, with you. I, I think Ben. I think Ben gave it his best damn shot. Yeah, I yeah. agree with you. Um, I think who was playing Foggy? Uh, oh, he was, was the best part of the movie. But yeah, it was John um, Favreau. John, yeah. was John Favreau. He was great. I see. I I, <laughs> I loved him. So he was happy. He was uh, Happy Hogan. He was Happy Hogan and, and Foggy yeah, Nelson. Yeah, yeah. Right. I, I didn't um, even know that. I yep. preferred his Happy Hogan to his Foggy Nelson. Oh, absolutely. He didn't. I agree with that too. He yes. didn't. He's not quite the right feel for a Foggy Nelson, I think. But the scene in the cafe when they're getting coffee. That's that's a pretty good one. My, my, you know why I loved him as Foggy, and, and again, this is this is in the context of he doesn't come close to the current Foggy on Netflix. But um, when they're in, in the Nelson and Murdoch office and it's a wreck, and Foggy's trying to convince Matt to take cases where they actually make money, <laughs> and he says, "You know what? Are we living like Sanford and Son in here?" And like like it was, <laughs> it was, it was, it was, it was like I, I, already I was like a drowning man trying to find moments I could reach up in this where I could breathe, and that that was like a moment essentially, yeah. but. That's fair. I'm not going to take John Favreau's Foggy Nelson performance away from you then. Like everybody, <laughs> everybody gave it their all yeah. except for I think the director and the writers and maybe the producers. <laughs> so the whole, the because whole, somebody, the whole infrastructure of the film. Yes, yeah. everybody, somebody had to prove that script. And all everybody that. passed the yeah. the the actors. Uh, just bungled that. Um, that was pretty terrible. Now, Shane, now why do you think the director's cut is better? Because it gives you more Foggy and Matt parts. It expands. And you you Matt being a lawyer, too. Yeah. 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 And, and those are parts that I thought the first movie were lacking. I mean, not that it has to be completely that or, or you'd have a lopsided movie in the other direction. But the outrageous things that they tried to do and point out that Bullseye never misses and <laughs> like like you said – Bill with taking off his glasses to do anything. Yeah. I like bits and pieces. I like um, when he returns home after getting the, after patrolling the city, he touches his dad's gloves and those kind of things I like. Um, I like how his apartment was set up and the deprivation yeah, no, tank I and agree, all that. Yeah. But yeah, for the most part, the movie's terrible, but I at least like the director's cut enough that I, I will watch it once in a while. A great you know, while. But I was going to rewatch the director's cut, and I realized I don't even have it anymore. I must have either lent it away or got lost. But now I remember it vividly all the same. Compared to what's current, it's it's oh. there's no comparison. <laughs> <laughs> but it, at the time, I did enjoy the director's cut enough to to watch it when it came out. Murd. Mercifully, I can barely remember the Daredevil <laughs> movie. I remember Matt and I went to see it in the theater together, and. Uh, I've, Seem to think that he was a little more disappointed in it than I was. Uh, maybe just because I've never been that huge a Daredevil fan to begin with. Um, but uh, yeah, I absolutely agree uh, with 
what's already been said that you know, we're unanimous on the point that the actors were not at fault here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In point of fact, I actually really liked Ben Affleck as Ben Affleck. Yeah, I think, <laughs> I think I'm thinking of Affliction, and uh, yeah. as in this movie was afflicted on the public. Uh, but Ben Affleck was a, I, I really liked him in the role of Matt Murdock. Now, maybe a little less so as Daredevil. Maybe it was just the costume design. He, he really looked like he was wearing the stuntmaster's costume rather than, mm. uh, than Daredevil's. Um, but yeah, the, the one line of dialogue that stuck with me over the years from that movie is, uh, muggers don't usually wear rose oil and high heels, at least not this far from <laughs> Chelsea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That little scene where they're fighting in the playground was well choreographed and fun to watch. It doesn't seem like something that the Electra of the comics would do no, with Matt Murdock. Because no, no, Je- Jennifer Garner was not a good well, choice. Jennifer Garner, I, I, I'm always kind of a, the flavor of the month. I've the been time. a big Jennifer Garner fan since Alias. Oh, sure. Not Electra. No. Physically, not no. just not. I mean, from Alias, physically, she could do that, those stunts because she obviously had training, but not for a moment that I believe she was Electra. Not for a moment. It just, it just, it just didn't work. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, for me, I think Bill hit the nail on the head. I think part of the problem for me watching the movie was they're, they're trying to do a lot, way too much too fast in one film. And in doing that, they just gutted the characterization in the movie. Uh, it, everything felt let's mask squish as much as we can of of, of the entire double story. Let's get it all in this one movie in case yeah. we can't make another one. Right. Um, and that 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 handicapped your enjoyment of the film, because, especially if you're if you're if you're a fan of the comic, you're looking for certain things. And as you as you see less and less of that throughout the movie, you despair more and more as you're watching because you realize the people making this movie either because they're either because they're under pressure because they don't understand they just they don't have it and i was out the minute they pointlessly had matt not save the blind man crossing the street do you remember what i'm talking about where in the movie he just he prevents stan lee from crossing the street yeah. but the, he never actually saves a man from being hit by the truck and i'm thinking why on earth would you change it? That's that's the whole essence of his nobility. Yeah, it made it from that point on. I was like, this movie, I'm done. I'm out because it just there was no reason for that that I, I could discern. Sometimes you can understand why they change things. It makes sense why they change. I was like, why? Why did you do that? And the kingpin just didn't work for me at all. No, um, I, I love it, the actor. He's um, a very good actor, Michael Clark Duncan. But he was it was too it was, too, it, it was yeah, too late. That's right. He passed away. Yeah. But he was too cartoonish. Too over the top. I didn't find him menacing. And Electra was, again, totally, I thought, just was not interpreted correctly. Well, and, and Colin Farrell, as much as I like him in other things, he was terrible as Bullseye. Yeah. He's yeah, just a sort of mad dog Bullseye. Well, wait, wait a minute. To be fair, though, we all just said earlier that the acting was not the problem, though, in the film. Well, well the, his, the casting was, perhaps. Okay. His, yeah, his they, I didn't cast, appreciate as much yeah, as the yeah, others. Yeah, much as uh, I said that Jennifer Garner was cast because she was a flavor of the month, a hot name at the time. Yeah. I think I would say the same of Colin Farrell. Yeah. They put him in there, and then they had to rewrite the character to make him this Irish yes. thug, possibly IRA-affiliated. And, so, and doing these goofy tricks and then, like, revealing the paperclip yeah. or the... Things that I did f- like how he killed the woman with the peanut, though. But anyway, go ahead. Well, that yeah, but <laughs> that was just funny because yes. of plane rides. But I, I don't know. Yeah, I didn't buy. I didn't buy him touching his tattoo it all was, the time. It was cartoonish, it, it in was, the wrong way. Yeah, yeah. and it, it's harkening back to the camp yes. that we'd 
very much had enough of. Yes. Um, and had finally broken away from a little bit with X-Men and, to a lesser extent, Spider-Man, but Spider-Man was yeah. like... To a lesser extent, yeah. Yeah, but that, was, but that was like, that wasn't comic book camp, that was Sam Raimi camp. So yeah. you're like, yeah. okay, yeah. well, yeah. Horror Sam Raimi's yeah. going to make a Sam Raimi film. What are you going to yeah. do? Right, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> Good point. And, and, and it was just like, well, here we are again. You know, they, they hadn't figured out how to do a good um, costume yet. No. True. Not no. quite. Yeah. You that know, sucker they, they were getting They were getting closer. They were getting closer. Yeah, the Daredevil one did not. He almost looked like, you know. Did not get He almost there. looked like a pilot Daredevil. Like he was like a 19, early 20th century, like flying stuntman in that costume. To me, it looked like a race car driver's yeah. uh, jumpsuit. Yeah. So, but that, that for me, I, I concur with what you guys are saying is that too much, too fast, and in doing so, you made a, a very skimpy movie in terms of its its substance and it's right. just it's it, I remember it's nothing of the plot yeah. really. It might as well have been an interpretive dance routine of bullseye, <laughs> daredevil and Electra <laughs> flying around yeah. and punching and pretending. You know, to actually punch now another. looking at that movie in the in this new light, uh, I think I would have to actually rewatch it as an interpretive dance routine and see if I like it any better. I mean there's great there's great images from that movie. Yeah. Uh, Daredevil on top of the church. They, they replicate his, the Casada the Palmiata. Exactly. Are, there know. are there are things like that in there, but it's not enough to save the movie as a no. whole. They show they know their history. Yes. And but it just comes off as pandering, and mm-hmm. it is mm-hmm. largely because they were trying to fit too much into too small a space, and yeah. that's that's largely my critique with a lot of these failed yeah. movies. Converse. Go ahead, sir. I was oh. waving at somebody over there. Conversely. In 2015, so 12 years later, yeah, that's that's quite a long time in terms of movie, sure, movies, technology and production and taste changing and so forth. Hmm. Well, hell, it's not even a movie; it's Netflix on TV. And I think I speak for everybody. And please, if, if I don't, if I'm not, shout out that everything that the movie producers back in 2003 got wrong, they got right. Yeah, in in 2015. They realize if we're going to tell this character's story, this is the medium we need to use the vehicle, television. And television that is not network because then we have to dilute too much of it. Right. And boy, they didn't dilute it. No, no. So we're going to take what we feel is the – and again, it's on, on the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah. So it's Marvel in charge. What is the essence of this character? What we think makes this character so compelling? And then we're going to play it all out. And I mean – for God's sakes, Jeff Loeb was invo- is involved in the show. You've got people from B- Joss Whedon's Buffyverse like Doug Petrie and uh, Stephen S. Knight and uh, Drew Goddard all involved in the show. And from the moment uh, – now, Bert, you've watched one and two? Uh, yeah, just those two. Well, you, up, fi- you finished it. I, I've seen it all in, in the space of two days. Yes, I'm I, up I, through the uh, stick episode. I watched that. So you're on issue se- seven? episode seven. Yeah. Okay, so we'll speak in generalities. But from the moment – the first episode starts, and Foggy begins talking. I was in my, my house with my family. I stood up, and I said, they have it. It's all good. My wife looks at me like I'm pathetic and crazy, which is nor- her normal expression. Yeah. Um, I feel your pain there. But I knew right away they have it. Look at the way he's talking. Like, look, at, look at the way he looks. It's the guy from the Mighty Ducks, for God's sake. Yeah. But he yeah. works as Foggy Nelson and go ahead, go ahead. Shane. I'm trying to think of the movie. And she's all that. He was in that as well. He was in she's all that. He was. He was the friend, most notably at the prom, 
when um, he was finds... he the role of the sidekick male friend for the yeah. female protagonist? Yeah. Okay. Who doesn't actually get her, but he's like supporting her and so forth. Yeah, he yeah. just really tells Freddie Prince Jr., "Hey, watch out! This guy's going to do something to that girl that you like," and that's his biggest part in that movie. Oh. Well, he's in a much different world now. But yeah. what I'll say for Neff, without spoiling it for, for Shane and Murd have not finished it. Um, and I'm purposely not doing that because I want it to last. I understand. I, I can respect that, sir. For me, it is one of the most compelling and accurate cre- recreations of a comic in, in, in the television or film medium. In every episode, uh, I just feel like they fully understand how Matt Murdock and his world work, essentially. Yeah. And Vincent D'Onofrio as Wilson Fisk – for all the reasons I didn't like the way they had Michael, Dark Clark, Michael Clark Duncan interpret Wilson Fisk, D'Onofrio, when you just see him from the back looking at the painting, mm-hmm. and then Vanessa comes over and they're talking, and and the voice that he chooses to use as the character. Yeah. So soft. It scares the shit out of me because – you, you sense there's this man who, who in some ways is, is not confident. Like he's still trying to find his footing as this all-powerful gang lord. But at the same time, there's this menace that can literally tear you apart well, and, and if, that's, if he so chooses. I was the, – the, the terrifying part of his voice for me was that I'm waiting for him to snap. Yes. And he and, does. <laughs> when, when you get to episode four and he snaps, boy, whew, look out. Yeah, uh, and this, this is and this is after you're introduced to Wesley, yeah. who yes. is like this guy who just sits down with another guy, opens an iPad, goes, "This is your daughter. We're gonna kill her if you don't do what we say." Yeah, and you go like, "This guy's all business," and you realize he's not even the scary one. No. He's like, and "That's what it is. It's business." Yeah, it's 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 just business. Yeah, yeah. But um, again, I think the cat. We talk about casting. The casting in this show. I think is so spot on. Um, I can't wait to. See, I know they've cast the Punisher for next season. Mm. I think it's one of the guys from Walking Dead. It right? is the guy it's who played a, Shane. Okay. Yeah. Um, I know they're casting Elektra. I think they're mm. casting Bullseye too, if, I'm, if I've heard correctly. Um, I have complete faith. I, I can't wait. Well, and 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 what really solidified it for me was that I, I'm sure it was in the first episode, if not the second, the hall fight scene. Oh. Mm-hmm. Which we've all seen here at yeah, the table. Yes, yeah. Just absolutely fantabulous. Well, what I loved about that was if, – if, if people haven't seen it, it's Daredevil's trying to rescue a child from a, a Russian uh, criminal gang uh, child slavery ring. Yeah. And he's trying to – the kid is being held at the end of this hallway, and he basically has to fight – through at least oh, a half a dozen yeah, Russian gangsters. Uh, I think more. Yeah, some yeah. of whom have guns. And in multiple rooms. Yeah, it's just him. You're right, going from the hallway to a room to another room, back in the hallway, and so forth, and off the walls. And yeah. but it is, but it is also very worth it to say that this is a one take. It's well, it's yeah. one. Oh yeah, one shot. No. Like you, there's fighting off of camera. Yeah. yeah, and in many portions of this, you just hear the things, or you see something flying out of a, a door. It's yep. just the hallway. Hence the hallway scene. <laughs> and, and if I remember right, no wire work. This was no. all them brawling. No. doesn't look like it anyway. Yeah. But what I found to add to that is you think of Daredevil as – yes, he's, he's, he is literally a trained ninja. But he's also a boxer and a street brawler. 
And in that fight scene, you see all of those ingredients, yeah. basically, because he's in a closed space fighting multiple men. And they really take pains to show you how exhausting this brawl is. Guys are, can't, are falling down as they try to get up. Um, Stumbling. Yeah, it's it's mesmerizing. And then at the end, and Murd noted this right away, before, before he rescues the kid, he takes his hood off. Yeah. He's not wearing the red costume. He's just wearing his black streets. Yeah, yeah. Togs. So he doesn't frighten the child. Um, but it, that scene alone, I, I agree, it just tells you this is not your – this is not your movie Daredevil that your granddaddy liked. I mean, this is <laughs> – to me, when I watch that show, I'm like, okay, I would sit down in my recliner with my beverage and my snack. It's okay. I'm going to now watch the Daredevil comic yeah. in my living room. And Charlie Cox, I think, is so dead on in capturing Matt Murdock in the sense that you feel safe around him, but you also sense that he could blow at any second, that he is not stable, that he's trying to balance all these hats, and he can't possibly keep doing it forever. Um, Rosario Dawson's Night Nurse. I love their dynamic. Uh, again, without ruining it for Murd, did you just see? Did you watch the episode yet with the Hand Ninja? No, I think that's coming up. Okay, it is coming up. That's that's oh! that's a little later in the season, but oh! yeah. Wow, that was that was the scene that Danny was like, uh, very very uncomfortable uncomfortable with yeah. was the dragging, yeah, specifically. Um, it's a show that I think – and it's a hard thing to balance that you're taking the, 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 the crime noirish elements of Daredevil, balancing that with the mystical elements of the Hand's backstory, and that they brought it all in there, hmm. and it's working. And they're yeah. managing to set up the other stuff too because yes. you can already see elements of uh, what is going to be, the, I think, parts of Jessica, jo- or Jessica Jones, yeah. uh, parts of what is going to be the Iron Fist story in particular – you're thinking of the Chinese woman. I am thinking yes. of the Chinese woman. Okay. We'll, get, we'll, we'll talk about that more later. I think you're right. Yep. Well, gentlemen, I don't want to go too much into it because we haven't all finished the series yet. But yeah. I think it's, it's fair to say that multimedia-wise, Daredevil's in very good hands right now. Absolutely. Um, we have a chess set in the store, and uh, it's Marvel superheroes yes. versus Marvel villains. And uh, Daredevil is the bishop. I, I'm 50-50 on this choice. Because I like the religious connotations, but I also don't understand how he knows what color square he's on. <laughs> and Billy ends, with, Billy ends with a patented cheap joke, ladies and gentlemen, which is only appropriate. Well, we want to thank you for joining us on our multi-year journey through the eras of, for me, one of the all-time great comic book characters. It's one of the all-time great Marvel Universe characters. We will be returning to Daredevil. Hopefully in the not-too-distant future we're going to do a thorough discussion of Born Again, which we've purposely kind of skipped over yeah, because uh, we feel that's a story that deserves its own episode treatment essentially. So thank you for listening, and uh, please don't hesitate to answer questions or, or pose questions or comments, of course, on the forums mm-hmm. for this. Anybody else have any closing comments? Nope, all good. Well, I don't personally, but as a special end-of-episode treat – I do have a, a little voicemail Excellent. here to, to cap things off at the end of the episode. It's, here's another country heard from. It was my birthday yesterday. <laughs> July 4th. July 4th is my birthday. None of you called. That's all right. That's all right. I wasn't expecting it, you know. People get busy. It's a, it's a holiday. You know, lots of, lots of do. 
And uh, I understand it's, uh, it's a little convenient that uh, Captain America is born on July 4th. I get that. It's, you know, it's cute, right? It's, uh, it's on the nose, right? Is that what the clever, clever text might say about that? But I'll tell you what else it is. It's a little, it's a little crummy. Share your birthday with a big holiday like that. I mean, I'm honored. It's an important day. Blah, blah, blah. I get, of course, you get all, get all that. But as any kid who was born on Christmas could probably attest to, people are a little distracted. Doesn't mean I don't get attention on July 4th. I do, of course. You know, lots of people want to shake your hand, you know, or uh, be seen with you, you know, put you in a picture with themselves, whatever they whatever they do. And uh, I get a lot of invites, you know, to uh, some cookouts, a lot of parades. Oh, boy, a lot of parades. <laughs> and that's, you know, uh, it's not that I don't appreciate that, but they, they stop very early in the morning, you know, sunny summer morning. And... Uh, and I usually have started early the night before, if you know what I mean, you know, on, my, uh, on my birthday weekend. And uh, it's going to be tough to uh, say, oh, yeah, I'll be there when the floats line up at uh, 7.30 or whatever it is. Yeah, this year, at about that time, probably about 8 a.m., my buzzer rang. Stumbled on down, and there was a schoolboy out there with his mom. He had memorized the entire Declaration of Independence, and he recited it to me standing on the stoop. You know, the whole thing, I guess, out of it, learned it for school or something. Hey, so, you know, that's a good boy. You know, clearly is uh, making good choices, but uh, I just stood there squinting. I hadn't invited the man. The place was a site, you know, and I had to clean the bathroom in a little while. And I thought, this is my birthday. I'm starting out my birthday. His mom looked like a goer, and I was all right. You know, she was wearing those, uh, what do they call them, that the Brooklyn ladies wear to go jogging, and I guess jogging pants. She had those on this. But, but you know, I tussled his hair and thanked him and sent him on his way. I don't get a lot of gifts. I like to make some phone calls on my birthday weekend. You know, as I'm doing with you now, to your radio program, and uh, yesterday, you know, I uh, gave Uncle Sam a call, uh, good, old, good old Uncle Sam, I called him over on the earth that he lives on, I have a thing, I can call the other, I won't get into explaining it, but I, you know, we've all met each other, <laughs> and I called, he picked up on the first ring, you know what I mean, I mean, I, I, I think he was just sitting by the phone the whole day. And I said, hey, happy July 4th, skinny old Uncle Sam, how are you? And, uh, you know, he, uh, he doesn't like me very much. I think he gets a little jealous. I don't blame him. You know, he, uh, he was first at it. And, uh, you know, it hasn't really worked out for him the way it has for, uh, for old Captain America. But he was gracious. You know, the way he is, it's very tightly wound that one. And uh, I like to josh him. I said, hey, Sam. I uh, I saw a picture of you. I saw a poster of you on the subway. Well, he perked right up. He tried to pretend he was excited, but he was. He said, oh. And I said, 
Yeah, it was a pawn shop, pawn shop ad. A guy, a guy all dressed up as Uncle Sam, holding a, holding a big bag of money and saying, sell me your electric guitars, you dope fiends, or whatever it is that uh, those pawn shops do. Bring me your gold. <laughs> he didn't like that too much. He didn't hang up, though. Boy, that, you know, I was the one that had to finally get off the phone with him. I think he would have talked all day, and uh, then I called Liberty Bell. Actually, <laughs> I got uh, what do you call the uh, caller ID thing? Everybody pick up. That's fine. It's all right. I'm old now. <laughs> got time to make phone calls. You know, I think my Earth is gone or something. I can't keep up with some some goddamn thing. That, uh, but I got some time. And, uh, I'm old. Maybe we'll talk about that more another time. But uh, I enjoy it. You know, lets me make excuses for things. You know, forget things. Other people's birthdays, you know. I think your radio program had an anniversary or some damn thing. I'm not sure. I have some, uh, I got to check my little book for that. But uh, that old man smell, though, that's a real thing. You know, and it, uh, it happens fast. You know, I'm not sure what that's about. Boy, it showed right up. I guess a lot of hands. You know, I can get away with that now. You know, I say, uh, oh, aren't you lovely? Kiss it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks very much, and happy birthday, drunk Cap. <laughs> happy birthday, Cap. Keep them flying. Happy birthday. <laughs> Three sheets to the wind. <laughs> All right. Well, in addition to thanking Drunk Cap, we also need to thank our sponsor for this episode, the last in our Daredevil Spotlight series, Hoo-Ha, SuperheroStuff.com, where you go for all of your Superhero Stuff! stuff. Check out their Ant-Man selection and their Shark Week sale this week. Visit us at ComicGeekSpeak.com to send us an email. The address is ComicGeekSpeak at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, the number is 267-702-6642. Stop by The Comic Forums and let us know what you think of Daredevil in this era. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook. Thanks to everyone who uh, sends stuff in, especially Drunk Cat. And as always, we are uniting the world's mightiest heroes, one listener at a time.